it was a great conversation. And um, I didn't realize that Richard uh, is a kind of an MMT guy. And they were talking about his book. And I kind of figured that out after about 15 minutes or so of them uh, talking. And um, I, I'm just really fascinated to talk to Mike because Mike was discussing some potential benefits to government spending and having the Fed monetize the government debt or you know print money, whatever you want to say. And, uh, and you know, that's not my view. As you guys know, I do a lot of thinking on this. And my belief is that we need smaller government. And that's going to be the the way the, the best path forward although there's always a cost-benefit analysis but Mike's a really smart guy Mark, Mike's a lot smarter than I am so I wanted to invite him on today to discuss this and see if I might have some blind spots or uh, you know just have a, a healthy back and forth and see if I can kind of sharpen my thinking so that was the jet oh there's Mike right there let me get him on here so let's dive in man I, that was a fantastic uh, talk last night I, I I really wanted to kind of ask a couple questions at the end there, but it was really late my time, and I, I wasn't in a position nope. to where I could actually, you know, uh, log on and act, and use the mic and, and ask something specific. So I said, well, I'll just hold off. But then I, I woke up, and I was still thinking about it, at, you know, like 6.30 this morning. And that's when I reached out to you uh, via DM to see if you'd be open to discussing it sometime. So I really appreciate yep. you coming on such short notice. For those of the the uh, listeners who didn't have the opportunity to listen to the discussion last night, do you want to give a quick summary of that? Sure. So uh, the guests that I invited on last night, this is part of a series that I've started doing um, since I launched my Substack uh, profile for that. It's on my, it, in my profile if you have any interest in it. Um, and... One of the things that people have asked me repeatedly is, you know, like, what are you reading? What books do you recommend, et cetera? Yeah. Um, that kind of overlaps with and what, in my view, is an opportunity to highlight many of the less followed authors that are out there that have some interesting and innovative thoughts. Um, this happened, the, the one that, that uh, George is referring to happened to be a discussion with Richard Duncan, who is a individual, um, an economist, former um, strategist on Wall Street, who lives over in, I believe it is Thailand, um, and has written a book called The Money Revolution, which is about many of the things that uh, we both have identified and complained about um, in various ways over the past few decades. Um, Richard's contention, and I think it's accurate, um, is that the form of money has changed in important ways as a function of rising surplus that has been created. And money um, therefore frees us to do things in ways that we couldn't have done before. And part of the reason why I'm highlighting that conversation is because I think one of the primary issues that we have in today's world is we're very focused on this idea of we need hard money, we need gold, we need Bitcoin, we need to fix the money before we um, can fix the problems with society. I actually think that that has it completely backwards. I think as a society, we are afraid of the implications of power we now have. Um, 
and are falsely seeking some forms of safety and a you know a make America great again framework, um, wanting to go back to something that really only existed in our minds. So th- th- that's kind of the focus of, of what I'm pushing on. And, and just as quick background, right? Like George, um, I am skeptical of the role of government. I am skeptical of government's ability to identify how to spend money, how to spend it well, what choices to make, et cetera. But to deny the character of money in enforcing a belief on smaller government is, in my opinion, a mistake. Okay, the first, thanks for that, Mike. The the first um, thought that I had, and just so everyone's clear, it's it's the the chart that uh, you brought up with uh, Mr. Duncan first was basically World War I and after the Fed was created and how the Fed's balance sheet uh, went up significantly, Mm -hmm. uh, even relative to today. And how they basically financed World War One, and since that time, uh, if we fast forward to World War Two or fast forward to the GFC or 2020, uh, the government has been able to increase their spending uh, as a result of the Fed basically monetizing the debt because the Fed can print an infinite amount of bank reserves, um, and or they might not uh, they might have been able to finance it otherwise, but at the very least, the, his position was that they could finance it at a much lower rate. And uh, therefore, uh, if you look at Japan as an example, it's got, let's say, 225% debt to GDP. Uh, the United States right now, at, let's say, 125% debt to GDP, has a very uh, long way ahead of it. And we could deficit spend to the tune of you know, he didn't give a specific number, I don't think, but let's say a trillion, two trillion a year for the next 10 to 15 years. And it really wouldn't make that much of a difference. The only thing it would do is if we allocated uh, the additional deficit spending wisely, it would uh, give us an advantage, uh, especially in terms of uh, geopolitics. Uh, I think you guys were talking about artificial intelligence and, and China and how if we could just kind of get over this hurdle of the deficit being a problem and just from an MMT standpoint, understand that the government can create as many electronic currency and it's all they are is just bank ledger entries. Uh, And there is no limit on that. Therefore, why not leverage that ability because we're not on a gold standard to go ahead and invest that wisely to create uh, a green energy revolution I think Richard was talking about curing every single disease known to man and a lot of these things that might seem kind of uh, pie in the sky, but at very least give us an edge as far as our geopolitical competitors, if you want to use those terms. Is that kind of a, a fair assessment as well? Well, I think it's a fair assessment, but I think one of the challenges that, that... Um, and, and this is one of the things that I indicated in my speech in my discussion with Richard, right? I think one of the challenges is that when you engage in the hyperbole of, you know, we can solve every disease known to man, you're simultaneously getting people's attention and you're also discrediting your argument, right? You never <laughs> solve all diseases available to man, nor can we buy happiness, right? I mean, we know we actually can't do that. 
What we can do is we can provide the resources that allow individuals to become productive members of society. And if you think about the dynamics of you know network effects, right? Shannon's law tells us that a network becomes more valuable the more effective nodes that exist upon it. And that's really what I'm focused on when I talk about raising the value of human capital. I want us to live in a world in which nobody is considered a deplorable, nobody is limited in their ability to participate in the system. Right? That's a very different statement than saying we're going to cure cancer. Right? But, but Rich's general theory is correct, that the use of money or the description of money is broadly misunderstood. Dollars and the debt of a true sovereign entity like the United States, it's not actually debt in the household sense, right? Because it cancels itself out. That's the definition of what the dollar is. If you pull it out and you look at it, it says this, this note is legal tender for settlement of debts, public and private. Money simply exists to cancel out debt. So it's really the equity of our country, right? Now, should we use equity to fund everything? Of course not, right? Because then you'd just be spending willy-nilly. Should a corporation pay some fraction of its salaries to its employees in cash and some fraction in equity? Well, by paying them in equity, they get participation. They now have an incentive to do a better job. Should they pay everything in equity? Of course not. That would be foolish. That would dramatically increase the supply of equity. It would put it into the hands of people who would be unlimited in their desire to sell it because your you know, PowerPoint vendor needs to pay their bills. It's not a consequential position for them. So they're just going to dump it onto the market. That'll put pressure onto your security, right? Um, that's the type of framework that I want people thinking about when we talk about the US dollar, how to spend it, what are the priorities, what level of debt should we have, et cetera. Because there is a pushback, right? If we do this willy-nilly, and Richard's point is what seems willy-nilly is actually surprisingly large. If we were to spend under his plan $10 trillion, it would not that meaningfully affect the debt to GDP, which is what you were referring to. As and then to be clear, Mike, that was over a long period of time. That was over a decade, right? So he, he's basically saying the equivalent of let's do a moonshot program. Let's do something like the space program and the competition with the Russians in the 1950s and 1960s, right? That's that's what he's articulated. Right. Um, the challenge is how you choose to develop that. So there's two ways that I could do that, right? One is I can say, okay, I'm the federal government. I want to spend a trillion dollars competing with the Chinese this year. Therefore, I'm going to have Congress allocate every single one of those dollars. Right. In that scenario, you have the government directing the spending, trying to direct a significant increase as a fraction of GDP, and you'll effectively just end up stressing the resources in the system. The flip side of that equation would be for the government to basically post a willingness to invest under those frameworks and offer a series of things that would be similar to the sort of challenges, right? The genius grants or the challenges that have existed for things like, um, you know, self-driving cars or other components. And we've seen the incredible progress that we've made in those areas when we've created sufficient rewards and sufficient funding so that the risks are reduced and subsidized while the rewards are broadly shared, right? We all benefit from these innovations. So the first couple questions that I've had, I'd have is... And, and just, just very quickly, yeah, I, I listed, I put up a tweet thread into the nest. You guys can flip through that. That has many, but not all of the slides. From the discussion with Richard. Yeah. So what would be the downside 
there because obviously there's a cost benefit analysis and there's a chance that this doesn't go according to plan. You know, well, I, I think that I think that's absolutely the critical issue, right? If we decide that we're going to devote an incredible amount of resources in the United States, right, to solving cancer, there is no guarantee that we solve cancer. Money could very well not be the constraint in this issue. It could be the existing technology is simply not in a position to allow us to do this, right? It could be that our understanding of the mechanisms of cancer turn out to be fundamentally flawed, right? In the same way that alchemists spent, you know, centuries trying to recreate gold, convert lead into gold or other components into gold until we discovered, oh, guess what? It's actually a primary element. You can't do that unless you are prepared to expend extraordinary energy resources through fusion, right? There is a way you can create gold. We actually know how to do it. It's just so incredibly energy intensive and expensive that the only way it gets formed is in supernovas, right? right. So what's the downside? We waste a whole bunch of resources. And that's, isn't one of my critiques of, of Richard's, Richard's articulation. I, I don't know what the right programs are, but I think the fear that we're going to make a mistake is stopping us from making choices. So, yeah, I, I don't know that I have, well, would fear be the right word? I don't know if that's the, the word, what I feel. The, the way I look at it is if you, especially considering the current political environment, if we just say that, hey, we're going to allocate, we're going to give the government the, the power to invest, uh, let's say a trillion dollars a year for the next uh, 10 years, when you consider what is going on right now with things like, uh, you know, Hunter Biden or, or Ukraine or whatever rabbit hole you want to go down, I just can't imagine that there would be a high probability that that money would be spent or invested prudently. And I also would be extremely concerned, and I'll take fearful, but concerned that the allocation of that capital would lead to more bad than it would create more harm than good uh and i think the probability of that is extremely high when you see the track record of governments um you know assuming that we could wave some sort of magic wand and get people uh in political positions of leadership that are actually um kind of the benevolent dictator, right? Or someone that actually had good intentions. I, I just see that being almost impossible, but maybe I've got a blind spot there. Well, I think, I think that's actually exactly the issue, right? When you're saying you think that it's basically impossible, right? That the systems could be in place that allows elected representatives or a government um, of which you are a participant by your voting to make proper choices, then you're saying, okay, I, I, I just fundamentally do not believe in the system in which I live. And that's okay, by the way, you can say that, but that's not particularly helpful, right? I mean, it's, if you want to come up with a completely alternate system and you want to run all the risks of that alternate system failing to work as every other competing system has failed to work, right? What's the classic expression? Democracy is the best of all the other failed attempts. You know, yeah, I will. But I, I don't. You, you either believe in representative democracy or you don't. Yeah, but I don't look at it from a standpoint of uh, I don't have a defeatist type of view where I just wave a white flag. I, I think that 
my view is that we, if if we can convince people that the objective or that a, the best path forward would be through smaller government, uh, I I think that would move the needle and have a better the the, the probability would be higher that we have so, 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 a better so, outward much smaller yeah. and larger. Right. So, so George, let me just ask, though, for clarification. You mean smaller. Do you mean you want to get rid of old-age assistance? I'm, what I'm saying, specifically, is that government spending as a percentage of GDP, ideally, in my worldview, would go down, not up. And I and where, let me tell you where I'm getting that opinion as far as some numbers. Uh, I, I did a study recently, uh, going back to 1870. And what I did is I looked at M2 money supply, and I looked at real GDP, and then CPI. And what I found, and I looked at 30-year periods, so roughly 1870 to 1900, uh, then I went 1930 to 1960, and so on. And what I found is that as the government spending as a percentage of GDP increased, real GDP went down. And if you have a similar increase in M2 money supply, as the real GDP went down, you would expect that the rate of inflation would increase. So when I hear, let's add a trillion dollars of deficit spending, what I'm also hearing is let's take government spending to an even higher percentage of GDP. And if you look at the past, going back to 1870, that has led to lower real GDP and, and therefore a lower standard of living in aggregate total. So that that's my that's kind of the position or my framework uh, that I'm looking at this. I'm I'm not saying that you know the current system is completely flawed and we have to wave the white flag. Uh, I'm I'm actually saying the opposite. I think that there's tremendous power. It, that we have as a people. And I think regardless of how much power the government has right now, if we stood up and choose uh, for the government to have less control or have lower spending as a percent of GDP, then that's what's going to happen. But I, I, I just, I, again, I, I see more government spending and saying that is going to likely lead to a better world or, you know, X, Y, Z improvement. I just, I have a hard time with that. Oh, does that make sense? It, it, it does. Unfortunately, the analysis that you did has issues of both co-integration and variable definition. Right, but it's a very fancy way of saying that when you think about government spending increasing as a fraction of the economy, you can't actually tell whether that is happening because the private sector activity declined and the government stepped in to fill the void, or whether it was the increase in government spending activity that in turn caused the private sector to contract. Right, but you're looking at real GDP, though. So if real GDP is going up, government that... spending, no, I, I understand, but, but government spending is part of GDP. Likewise, linking real GDP and CPI, while not a perfect parallel, CPI is actually embedded in the calculation of real GDP because higher inflation lowers real GDP. So you have co-integrated variables here and your definitions are not independent. 
that you can't do that analysis that way. There are ways that analysis done. Well, so there's, first of all, when you start talking about GDP, understand that this is a huge chunk of measurement issues, right? So for example, if I live by myself on a farm and I feed myself, my family, and I have no reason to go interact with anyone else, what is GDP? Zero, right? GDP only measures traded goods and activities and traded goods and activities both create surplus and are derived from surplus. I will only trade if I produce more grain than I need. That's part of the reason why things like liquor taxes were the first ones that were introduced in the American Republic, because it was a tax on surplus, effectively that which could become GDP. I, I, think, I think when you're comparing similar measurements of GDP and you're seeing correlations that's exactly, over but, but majority. That's the point. Yeah, but that's the point. The GDP that we had in 1870 bears almost no resemblance to the GDP of 2023. Okay, would it would it be reasonably similar from 1930 to 1960 or 1960 to 1990? Not really, right? Because remember what's happening in 1930. The U.S. until 1930, when Americans moved from being a largely agricultural society in which the vast majority of individuals more closely fit the description that I just gave, where they're self-sufficient on their farm, to participating in the economy in terms that measure to GDP, right? So like, and, and in 1960, we've moved from a world in which the U.S. is just making that transition, just being introduced to things like household credit, just being introduced to the idea of global trade on and you know, uh, on you know, powered vehicles effectively that's making it possible to consistently ship stuff and make it an integral part of the supply chain. So the 1960s is a world where containerization has already begun to explode global trade. Right? They're, they're not comparable, and it's, it, this is one of the real challenges. It's like every single part of what you're describing, including the deflators themselves, have to the thing that tell, talks about inflation, right? Has to be customized and, and thought of as specific to that period in time. Not at all comparable. It's really hard to do this. This is one of the reasons why a lot of these historical studies are so deeply flawed. Well, then, Mike, in moving forward, how would you quantify if that government spending was improving the standard of living in aggregate total? If there was no way to measure or quantify the standard of living. I I didn't actually say that there's no way to measure it, but I said that every form of measurement, and I actually wrote about this in one of my Substack pieces most recently, almost every form of measurement reflects a degree of judgment to it, right? Do I value the work of women in the home? So Simon Kuznets, who invented our system of GDP reporting, initially wanted us to, but the government bureaucrats were focused on taxation. You can't tax work in the home. Very difficult to identify. So we didn't define GDP as incorporating that dynamic. As we create tremendous amounts of surplus, women enter the labor force, they're educated in ways that allow them to participate in much more sophisticated ways than it would have been historically. We start to introduce household labor as a paid service. Okay, so right. if, when, if, when if we were to replace that paid service, when we replace that paid service with a vacuum cleaning robot, does that add to GDP? Does that lower GDP? Does that raise my quality of life? Does that lower my quality of life? These are really hard things to know. And the only way that you can really identify it is by looking at people's choices. And when you talk about raising people's standard of living, right, what has the United States represented for several hundred years? A place where regardless of what else is happening elsewhere in the world, people want to get here. That tells you everything you needed to know. The scary part 
is we're making such terrible choices that people are increasingly choosing not to come here. That's okay. right. But you don't think that could be a result of the increase in government spending as a percentage of GDP? I think that it could be, but I don't think that you've made your case with the study that you're talking about. And again, I'm not emphasizing that I think we should radically increase government spending. What I'm actually saying is we should be much more courageous about what we do spend our money on. We spend an awful lot of time talking about the sanctity of the U.S. debt. And I agree, by the way, that that has to be maintained, right? We have tons of voters who are going to rush to protect Social Security, Medicare, et cetera, spending on the very old. We all live in districts in which school budgets are being cut, in which the outcome from our educational system suck. And we accept that we just can't afford to do anything about it. That's terrible. That's a ridiculous choice. So if you wanted to ask me, should we increase government spending on Social Security, I'd say no. There's actually no evidence whatsoever that that would be helpful. And if anything, there's strong evidence that it's hurtful. Same thing, by the way, for strategies that involve cutting taxes further, right? The issue is not taxes. You're correctly identifying the issue is spending. I'm going a step further and saying the problem is what do we spend it on and who do we tax in the process? Hey, guys, just want to remind everyone to check out Mike's Substack. It's at Michael w green.substack.com again that's michael w green.substack.com not necessarily an increase in government spending it's just a reallocation of government spending correct and part of the challenge george is just that it's much harder to take money away than it is to hand it out in the first place right so when you start talking about cutting the spending where are you going to cut are you going to cut the defense spending are you going to cut support for women and children? Are you going to cut Social Security? That's why I ask you, like, what are you going to cut? You're talking about me personally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you're going to increase the age on Social Security, uh, on Medicare, and then you're going to... This isn't something that you could take a hatchet to it and decrease government spending overnight. And then let's also remember that it's just increase, or decreasing government spending as a percentage of GDP. So yeah, even but, if, but, if so, so there's two ways. There's two ways of doing that, right? Remember, if I cut government spending, I actually shrink the GDP. Right, I understand that. But but so, so no, I, but but the question is, when I cut that government spending, am I actually shrinking GDP by more than a dollar that I cut government spending? In which case, I, I could very well actually end up increasing my government spending as a percentage of GDP. Well, I'm under the belief, and it's my worldview that if you slowly decrease the government spending, and if you do that wisely and prudently in a way that allows the private sector to do what it does well, over time, the decrease in government spending will be more than compensated for by the increase of economic activity from the private sector. So I, again, as I, as I said at the start, I broadly agree with what you're saying, right? The question is, when you talk about that slow transition process, which government programs do you choose to cut? Which government spending do you choose to enhance that frees the private sector to do more of what it does well? And third point I'd make is, what do you actually think the private sector does particularly well? Creates goods and services efficiently. So by outsourcing them to China? Well, yeah, by, so you guys discussed China quite extensively. I think yep. that was another interesting cost-benefit analysis because it, it seemed, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it seemed as though uh, Richard, in doing a cost-benefit analysis in, uh, let's say, free trade, 
uh, mm-hmm. saw an extreme cost and very, very little benefit. Um, but one thing that I didn't hear you guys discuss on the benefit side would be the cheaper goods and how that would impact. So I'm not saying that um, I, I'll be agnostic for the sake of the discussion, but I do think that there could be a cost, but there also could be a significant offsetting benefit. I mean, I think about if you would not have had goods produced in China over the past, let's say, 30 years, um, you know, how, what would that do? What would the poor look like today? What would the poor middle class, what would their purchasing power be understanding that the majority of what they buy is coming from Target, Walmart, Home Depot, et cetera, and the majority of that is coming in at a much, much, much lower cost. And I guess the argument could be, well, they would have increased their wages and they would have had uh, you know, similar purchasing power and you still would have all of that manufacturing that would be done onshore as opposed to offshore what's under our control. But I, I, I think that there's a little bit more of a benefit uh, than I heard you guys discuss. Um, so I think that, again, it's very complicated. Um, hopefully what you heard was a recognition that when we talk about the U.S. running a trade deficit, what we're actually doing is um, being compensated for the services that we provide to the rest of the world, right? So when you talk about and you focus on the purchasing power of the American public, the discussion that we had was, by definition, the system is set up so that credit is extended to the U.S. consumer by the Chinese through their purchasing of U.S. treasuries, U.S. corporate credit, asset-backed securities, et cetera, right? It, if they're going to sell to us, which is their objective, their objective is to skim off a portion of the profits created by selling their country, their uh, population's work to the United States. And I, I realize this sounds offensive to many people, but just, you know, imagine instead of talking about a government, we're talking about a king, right? The king gets his subjects to work in factories. Those subjects in turn have their products sold to Americans and the king gets to skim off a fraction of it. In order to prevent his currency from appreciating, he turns around and buys U.S. treasuries to fund effectively the vendor financing. Otherwise, the Chinese one would rise rapidly. The um, trade relationships would break down quickly, right? And you'd end up in a situation where the American public would be unable to afford those goods if the Chinese were not turning around and recycling the dollars, that, the surplus dollars that they receive in the trade surplus, their trade surplus, our trade deficit into U.S. treasuries, right? Like that's just the mechanical system and how it works. So the core of the issue is not, you know, is it a good idea or is it a bad idea for Americans to engage in trade? The question is, what's the objective function in terms of why we're engaged in that trade, right? I'm perfectly happy to support Japan. I'm perfectly happy to support China. If they're willing to behave as good partners in this process, there's a benefit that we receive, you're correct, but they haven't been good partners in this. So why am I subsidizing it? But what, what would be the cost? If, again, if we never would have done business with China because we say, you know what, we just don't like the way you guys operate, therefore we're just not going to have this trade, we're not going to buy anything from you, 
where the government is going to come in and intervene and make it illegal for entities to U.S. entities to buy goods from China and then resell in the United States. What 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 would be the cost, if if any cost, to Americans as a result of that? Uh, the cost to Americans would be you would have a higher cost of many finished goods and services. The flip side to that is many commodity-oriented products like cement, steel, less so aluminum for various reasons we can talk about. Copper in right. particular would be dramatically cheaper. Because there'd be less demand coming from Japan or from China? Right. They'd be dirt yep. poor. So on net balance, the inflation rate, the, the, the domestic consumer price inflation may be lower than you would expect because commodity prices in that world may be lower as well and so and since that's such an input to the majority of goods then it would have a, a significant impact i'm just trying to it, think it, that it, through it, out loud right. it, but this is part of the reason why i'm emphasizing it's complex we can't run that counterfactual yeah what we can run is the counterfactual of us enabling china the resources to pursue a system that is hostile to our interests, right? That involves the Americans who have this superior purchasing power that you're describing, being forced to send their sons and daughters off to war at some point in the future. You're assuming that China becomes an aggressor against the United States. Whether whether that's an assumption or whether there is a strong and very clear history that that is the path that China has chosen to follow starting in 2013, when they abandoned their system of reform and began moving back to an authoritarian system, it, you know, I'm not sure there's that much debate for it. Right. So sticking to the economics, I'm, I'm seeing your position and I'm understanding the, the, the framework better. And that was, you know, my main objective in wanting to, dis to, to talk this over, to just really sharpen my thinking. And, and see what type of blind spots that I that I may have. You know, and that's I, I, I would hope that's everyone's objective at the end of the day. And I, think, I, I broadly think it is. I, I mean, I want to believe that the vast majority of people are very positive on this. I also assure you that there's a number of people who basically tuned out at various points when they said anything to the ha, this guy's a status, this guy's anti-gold bug, this guy's inflationist, whatever. Right, so Why it goes in all directions. Yeah. Why, 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 assuming we've got, and I don't know if you believe this or this is just something that Richard was saying, assuming we have got so much balance sheet capacity as far as the U.S. government, why, why, why do we need China to buy our debt? Um, why can't we just have the Fed buy our debt instead? And, well, hold, hold on. Because you say thinking that we true, don't, because now that what I'm saying, we don't need China to buy our debt. We don't, unless we decide to engage in unbalanced trade with China. Right? We've permitted unbalanced trade to exist in the United States for so long that China has accumulated extraordinary claims against the future production capacity of the United States. Right. That's what the debt is. Right. Now we can choose to invalidate that as we just did to the Russians. Right. That sets a terrible precedent for the sanctity and value of um, the commitments that the U.S. government and its citizens make to the rest of the world. It makes people less willing to trade with us. Mm -hmm. Right? 
Um, but it is our choice that we could default uniquely on those obligations, that we could turn around in some way, shape, or form and say, okay, that's a force majeure that eliminates. By the way, that's one of the big reasons why people go to war, right? As one country promises to do something, then they refuse to. Well, right. we're going to make you. Okay, fine. Show up with soldiers and let's see if you can do that. And can you explain why you you guys, and correct if I'm wrong, but I think I remember you guys talking about why even if there was zero interest rate on the treasuries, that the, the Chinese would still be incentivized to take their surplus of dollars and buy treasuries. Because well, why... the only overall alternative would be for them to allow their currency to appreciate sharply. Because they need to and get those were... dollars outside into the system so the supply-demand dynamic create a, a, a lower dollar. Or, I'm sorry, a lower yuan. Lower you want, correct? Okay. Right. I mean, okay. so so just just very. I mean, like let's pretend there's just the two of us that exist in the entire world. I gaze yeah. long into your eyes, you gaze into mine. We choose to engage in in trade, right? You have got a hundred dollars in your pocket. I've got a wristwatch, right? Yeah. You want to buy my wristwatch? Fine. I give you the wristwatch. You give me the hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. Has anything changed? No, not just our balance sheets. Just we've, we've swapped our balance sheets. Mm -hmm. Now, if I want to get rid of the $100 and buy something else, right? Since you and I are the only ones that can trade with each other, I have to negotiate with you to accept the $100 in exchange for something else. You could theoretically say, you know what? I got nothing I want to sell you except the shitty watch you just sold me. And by the way, I wanted you to pay me 120 bucks for it now, right? Guess what? There isn't 120 bucks in the system. Where does it come from? The only way it happens is if you then say, you know what, and I'll lend you 20 bucks, you're going to pay me back in the future, right? So now I pay 120 bucks, 100 of the, the green paper that I just, that you had handed me before, mm -hmm. and an IOU from me to you for $20, right? So now trade happened. That's the only way that can, that's the only way that can occur is somebody, if you want to actually have it grow, somebody has to be willing to extend credit or increase the quantity of dollars in the system. Right, and and I just want to make sure that's, I'm clear. That, that's part of the that's part of the reason. I just want to emphasize this, right? Yeah, it's part of the reason why I wanted to have the discussion with Richard, and it's one of the things that I just want to try to you know really explain to people. Mm -hmm. We assign all sorts of morality to things, right? Debt is bad. Well, I mean, debt can also be an incredibly affirming thing. What do you say to your children? You owe me a debt of gratitude. For having raised you and having taken care of you and having made sacrifices to give you a better outcome is a debt of gratitude a bad thing now i think no. it's i think just from an economic standpoint if you're if you're taking on debt for productive means then it's most likely a positive if perfect you just said everything we need to say if you take on debt for productive means right now what richard is arguing is productive means would be spending that money to cure cancer spending that money to create artificial general intelligence, spending that money to relocate manufacturing back to the United States, et cetera. He's arguing that's productive, right? You can disagree with how he's choosing to allocate that, but that's part of the point. That's the last slide that's in my in my uh, panel, I believe, is saying, look, here's places the U.S. government spends money where we see a positive return, and here's the places we spend it where we see a negative return. And guess what? Our spending priorities are all fucked up. Right. I think that's where I disagree with, with Richard uh, most adamantly. 
because as as far as uh, just understanding from an MMT standpoint that there's no constraint on the amount of currency units uh, the government can create with the help of the Fed uh, in particular situations, I, I completely see that. It's, 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 it's very straightforward because all you're just dealing with is just electronic digits on balance sheets. So I understand there, there's no constraint there. Um, but again, it, it goes back to, it seems like his assumption is that if we do these things, uh, that that money is going to be allocated well and efficiently. And that that's where I, I just really have a, a hard time uh, buying into that, just because of what we have seen, uh, not always, but most often uh, with government spending in the past, uh, regardless of how uh, GDP is measured. I think we would all agree that most of uh, government spending and bureaucracy and red tape is incredibly efficient and actually, uh, you know, it creates a, an impediment for the private sector. I, I think you have to be very careful. Um, I would encourage people to read the work of Kat, uh, Katerina Pistor. If you've not read her work, she's a Columbia law professor. Um, she's done a fantastic body of work. And there's uh, a great interview of her with Ezra Klein that I just listened to. I know Dimitri, uh, uh, Kofinas of Hidden Forces has interviewed her as well. I think it's very poorly understood the importance of the systems that have been put in place to allow the private sector to thrive. That can be everything ranging from patents to court enforcement to police to make sure that I don't break in and steal the stuff from Target as compared to paying for it. These are all things that require government. Um, and to argue that the private sector is capable of uh, doing them just as well is deeply at odds with historical evidence. No, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just going back to just simple, basic Milton Friedman. You know, the government is there for defense, rule of law. Right. Go ahead. No, I, I understand, but that's actually part of the challenge, right? This is that Milton Friedman is designed to be consumed in sound bites, right? We're all better off if we have freedom. Yes, that is absolutely true. I include in my freedom, the ability to strike your head off. Are you better off now? Well, I, I think then that goes to personal property. Right. So you need the government to enforce. You need the government to have a monopoly on violence. How do we choose to pay for that? Do we just do it with you know, unicorns and, and rainbow parts? Right, but I don't think I'm... When I say I'm arguing for smaller government, I'm not saying I'm arguing for zero government. I understand. I think that there, there's a big difference between the two. No, I, I and, and I think there is too, right? But what I'm articulating is is when you say I'm for smaller government, you have to actually then say, here's exactly what I want to cut. Here's exactly what I want to remove from the spending. Here are the areas that I think that we could actually reallocate some of that to improve the growth of GDP. And other components of growth in GDP, I think, are going to be a function of me reducing the burden on the private sector. Right now, okay, the well, evidence is very limited. But what we have done, just to be very clear, in the United States is that we have reduced taxes without reducing the spending. Right now, that's a huge boon to those who are positioned to benefit from the government largesse, whether those are nursing home operators, pharmaceutical companies, billionaires who are capable of lobbying for particular inclusion and particular benefits associated with the taxability or um, characteristics of the IP that has been created, right? Like we're fooling ourselves if we think that there is not huge distortions that are created even under small government. So it just becomes a question of what you choose to prioritize. And what I'm fighting against is the idea that simply smaller is the right answer. 
because it doesn't happen. Right. So so let's sit, let's assume for a moment that bigger and better is the right answer. Bigger and better for the economy, not necessarily the government. Okay. Right? Bigger and we better. Reallocate, if we were to reallocate or if we were to marginally increase the spending in some areas, both Richard and I are arguing that the benefits associated with that would actually propel growth. Right. But it would require the prudent allocation of this such resources. So then, then we have every probability. Right. But so, Mike, just in your opinion, because you've given this a lot of thought, obviously, mm -hmm. wh what would you say the probabilities are that if we say, okay, government, here's an extra trillion dollars a year, that that is going to lead to what you want it to uh, lead to? Well, what is the probabilities of that happening? Under the current system, the current elected officials, I was sure it's low. So, okay, so how do we increase that? Because the way I look at government, and again, maybe this is a huge blind spot for me, is that if you increase the size or the power, let's say, that the government has, it's going to attract people that you don't want to have that power. I think last night you talked about George Washington, and this is as as someone who is as close to an ideal as possible, because he didn't even want the position. Mm -hmm. You know, people had to twist his arm to take that that role of, at the time, extreme power. But I think, again, my view, and correct me if if you have a different view or if you think I'm wrong, is that the larger government becomes, the more power it has the more it's going to attract the sociopaths, the more it's going to attract the Nancy Pelosi types, the Justin Trudeau types, or whoever you want to put into that category. Therefore, if you say, I want to increase uh, the power of government by doing XYZ plan because I want to keep up with China or stay ahead of China, that, that, that's great, but again, doesn't the probability decrease as we give the government more and more power, that we're going to have the right people in position to wield the additional resources that we give it. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I just don't think there's any evidence uh, to support your statement, right? Um, Nancy Pelosi exists because we have not chosen an alternative to Nancy Pelosi. We've not chosen to punish her for her transgression. But why did she pursue government in the first place? Let's say, like as an example, if we go back to that, uh, let's say that the late 1800s era or prior to the Fed, uh, government spending was about 8% of GDP. So again, how? Again, the definition of GDP, you just got to be really careful there, right? Because the far okay. higher portion of activity was happening inside a household back then. Okay. And but not to say the metric is. If, if you took the economy, however you want to measure it, the government was a much, 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 much smaller player in the economy prior to the completely untrue, completely and totally untrue. The government was a much larger player in many ways. In many ways, or an aggregate total, almost always actually. Who owned the land following the Louisiana Purchase? Okay, so, and again, this is why I'm having this conversation because I'm looking for blind spots to sharpen my thinking. So, by so by me getting focused on the amount of government spending, or I guess said another way, the, my, the metric I'm using to determine how 
much of a role the government is playing in the overall economy, I, I'm using the wrong metric. And if I were to use the right metric, there's a strong argument that the government was far larger and had far more power and was a much bigger percentage of the overall economy in 1880 uh, than it is in 2023. Is that what I'm hearing? I think that there are there, that it's important to recognize that there are arguments you can make in that direction, right? I, again, I agree in many ways that the government we have today is intrusive and ineffective, that it absolutely distorts our behaviors. There's almost no question about that. Well, and it distorts the economy. Well, yes, right, but uh, distorts- like lockdown. That, that's I'll give you that as an example. No, no, I, I, and and and. George, you know me well enough. You've seen my body of work. I was one of the first people screaming about lockdown, saying this is absolutely much worse, et cetera. Right? So, like, I just want to be very clear. I do not think that all government actions are good actions. I think the right, vast right. majority of them are ineffective. But when part of the reason that Nancy Pelosi exists is because the alternative rallying cry is do nothing. All right? That's not okay. That's not a realistic assessment of the conditions that we have in place today. Yeah, well, the objective I think... of the government is to provide defense, provide a system of law and order. Why? So that human beings are in a position to improve both their human capital and the physical capital and infrastructure that exists in our country. Right. That, right. That's, that's what I'm saying. That, that's exactly no, and, my and, point. And, and again, I think we actually agree deeply. Right. The question is, how do you choose to do that? Or, or, what, or how do you get the right person, or how do you get the right person there, or people, group of people, to where you have a, a probability, you know, high, or to where the risk reward makes sense to go ahead and deficit spend to the tune of a trillion a year. And, and going, so I think I kind of got sidetracked there. Let's, I did. Let's, 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 I mean, I just wanted to lay this out here. Like, let's remember, sure, sure. we're already deficit spending to the tune of a trillion dollars a year. Well, I'm saying an additional trillion. We're, uh, Right. And again, this is one of the areas where I somewhat disagree with Richard, but I think that it's important for people to understand why I could actually be seen as agreeing with Richard. Right. Because I think the idea of thinking of the debt itself as a constraint, as it would have been in a world in which we were on the gold standard, in which we were forced to balance accounts on a continuous basis. Right. And that Candidly, that that was a misunderstanding of what money was and the role that it played, right? If it, like there's a, a million different ways that we can talk through all those dynamics. Yeah. But because I have a much more flexible definition of where we are today and what is quote unquote unsustain- unsustainable, I'm more open to discussions around not should we just shrink the amount that the government spends. And much more open to let's reallocate how the government spends. And that may actually require us to spend a bit more so that we can create the conditions under which the underlying economy can grow. And that growth is what shrinks the government's share of GDP. Okay. So first thing, and I don't want to, we got to set up another spaces for this, but I, that's another thing that I, I don't know about. I don't know that the, there were constraints prior to 1971, uh, I, I don't know that that Richard's really gotten into the euro dollar market, and I, like I'm sure you have, and I, I don't know that banks were as constrained 
And I've read from places such as the Bank of England that the reserves are created to match lending and not vice versa. And well, that's so, not just the Bank of England, by the way. I mean, Richard Warner's work um, yeah. on Twitter at signs of econ, et cetera. That we, yeah, I had Richard at my live event. Yeah. Right. So that, that's actually part of what um, Richard Duncan, who I was interviewing, uh, highlights. It wasn't 71 that changed things. It was 68 when Congress removed their requirement for the Federal Reserve to have a certain quantity of gold. Right. But I, I've looked at their balance sheet quite extensively, like he was saying. And I, I don't know that that was a constraint on, let's say, M2 or the amount of credit creation. But but going back to the, the point, let me just make it, then we can move on with Nancy Pelosi, because I think that's really crucial, uh, is how do we get the right people in place? Because if you have the wrong people in place, this, an additional trillion dollars in government spending, uh, to my point, is going to make things far worse than it is today. It's not even going to be a net washed. It's going to be much, much worse. So, you know, so maybe I used the wrong timeline, but maybe said another way, let's just assume for a moment that the federal government had very little power. Let's just assume that it did for a moment. I don't think that a Nancy Pelosi type would even want a position in the federal government if it had the power of, uh, let's say, a, a county a government or something like that. So, so again, how, how do we make sure that the people that we have available to vote for uh, are, are there as a result of um, altruism or a, a, a strong desire to do what's right for the country and, and, and having an economic understanding to make that happen? How do we make sure that those people are even applying for the position uh, and, and shouldn't we assume that if government has more power, that is, it is going to attract, or isn't that a risk, maybe better said, that it's only going to attract people that have an insatiable lust for that power to begin with? I mean, I, I don't know how else to say this, but like, that's always been the case. Leadership has always attracted a disproportionate number of sociopaths, those who are willing to make choices that the rest of us would say, oh my God, why would you ever be willing to do that? Right. I just think, I, I think you get my point. So I, I won't beat a dead horse. So, so moving on, Mike, if you, well, but, but, would, but, I, but, but I also like, I just want to say like, we know the mechanism for that. If you don't want nasty people to be in power, don't vote for nasty people. Don't reward policies and election techniques that reward nastiness. Don't elect Trump after he says, you know, I could shoot somebody walking down Fifth Avenue and nobody would care. Right. I understand that he is a proxy for the best we could get. But the reason that that's the case is because we treat people who try to run for public office and who have the requisite skeletons in their closet that we all have, right? We treat them like terrible people. And those with no shame around it, the George Santoses, et cetera, of the world, are able to exploit those dynamics, right? If we demand better from our elected officials, if when somebody like a George Santos lies repeatedly, misrepresents himself, there's consequences associated with it, then they are less likely to run. But the system we have in place now has rewarded how many knew who this guy was. How do we tailor a message to persuade people that 
this is the approach that we should take because it's extremely nuanced. So what I'm thinking, you know, I've got a couple of YouTube channels. I do live streams almost every single day. And, uh, you know, we go back and forth in the, the chat and I, I talk to a variety of people and I, I don't know how I tailor a message saying that we just need the, the right people and we need to do X, Y, and Z, but it needs to be very delicate. I mean, who at the end of the day is the person that is sophisticated enough to be able to allocate that because I'm thinking about a Thomas Sowell book that I read. I can't remember the, the name of it for the life of me, but he was making an argument as to why a decentralized approach is superior to central planning. And basically his argument was that the combined knowledge, although any given person in the real economy might not be as smart as that central planner, their combined knowledge is far greater than even the combined knowledge of the central planners could ever, ever, ever be. So that's why the free market is always going to allocate capital and resources better than, let's say, a central planner. So how, it, it, how do we create a message where we say, okay, in order for us to advance as a society, we need some central planning, but it's just got to be the right form of central planning. Um, so there's a couple of things that I would um, articulate, right? One is our messaging matters. So if the way that we present it is the alternatives are shrink government or have government do more for people, um, we're going to attract people who want to shrink government. And those people are going to play to all sorts of biases that we have, right? What's the easiest way to shrink government? Is it to cut programs to the poor or is it to cut programs to the rich? It's a heck of a lot easier to go after the poor. Is it easier to go after programs for people who don't vote versus people who vote, right? We know the answer to that, right? This is, this is why Madison talked about an excess of democracy, right? We have to make hard choices. We have to accept that some people are going to be disappointed in the process. And we have to recognize that by and large, those of us who are best positioned to be disappointed are going to be the ones that have to bear that cost primarily. It's not reasonable for me to turn around and say, that the poor and the middle class should bear the lion's share of the sacrifice. When I'm gallivanting around the world in my private jet seeking out low-cost tax regimes, that's not fair. The fact that I pay more is not an expression that the system is unfair. The fact that I'm not making anything, any sacrifices remotely in common with the rest of my population is what gets us upset, right? But we've created a modern nobility. We have a class of people who have no interaction with the little people. And the only time they interact is to go out and tell them the platitudes that they want to hear as they seek re-election, right? I mean, when you talk about Nancy Pelosi, remember this is an individual so disassociated that during the pandemic, she showed us her refrigerator filled with pints of $10 ice cream. Functionally no different than Marie Antoinette saying, let them eat cake, also apocryphal, by the way, or, or worse, actually, because that was apocryphal as compared to Nancy Pelosi actually showed it to us, right? Why was she reelected? Why was she reelected at 78 years old? Forget who's running. 
how, how did we allow that to happen? Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I can't imagine voting for, so I'd be the wrong guy to ask. Uh, but so that you know, question, just instead of in, in, instead of us articulating what our vision is, why don't we go ask the people who voted for Nancy Pelosi? Why did you vote for somebody who had those characteristics? It just seems to me that they don't believe that she has those characteristics because we have become so tribal that uh, people, due to you know confirmation bias or whatever it is only seek out the information that makes them feel better about their current position or what team they're on, right? Whether you're so on how, team blue or team red. Right. So tribalism is a function, almost inevitably, of scarcity, right? I need to have a seat at the table. I need to be part of a tribe, right? We're playing a game of musical chairs. What's the worst thing that happens? You get left out. You're now out, right? So. Tribalism is an expression of scarcity. How do you solve scarcity? You invest. You're more efficient with the money that you spend. That's what we need to do. And that's what the Republicans are missing, in my view. Right? We're dealing with a world in which the real issue is a hidden scarcity that's causing an extraordinary amount of anxiety amongst the population. Will I be able to retire? Will my children be successful? Right? Will I be able to die in dignity? Will people respect me? Well, that's awfully hard to pull off when you're really panicked about what the future looks like. And you see it in the stress of kids today, right? We, we lambast them for all thinking that, you know, things are tough when we're looking at it like, okay, sure, you know, your avocado toast was, you know, a little bit expensive. Maybe you just don't buy some avocado toast. Right. So help me understand how that trillion dollars a year would improve the position or the overall attitude, uh, it, it, what would it invest in? I guess maybe that's a better question. You talk about investing being the key. So if we were able to uh, invest that trillion dollars a year, what we would we what would the government invest in in order to move the needle, in order to make society better, in order to give people more uh, peace of mind as they age, or just you know improve the standard of living. Well, again, I think it becomes a question of what are you actually trying to accomplish? So when we talk about improving the standard of living, there's things that we can do immediately. Here's $1,000. Yes, that improves my standard of living until the money that I've distributed now shows up in higher prices. Or I can say, you know what? We're going to invest more money in making sure that your children's education is superior, raising the productivity in aggregate for our economy. We're going to make sure that when they finish grammar school, they know how to do certain things. When they finish high school, they're actually a viable member of society. And then maybe if they want to go to college and they show sufficient aptitude, we're going to encourage them to do so. We're going to guide them to the investment, the human capital investments that offer a super high return going forward. Right? Everything that we've set up in the system right now is trying to rob it of those signals. You receive a student loan for going to college, not for going to college and getting an engineering degree and graduating with a B plus or better average, right? Those are yeah. two such radically different things. Yeah. Yeah. Over and over again, what do we say? We want to encourage homeownership. Why? Well, because homeownership is a proxy for community involvement and participation and stability in life choices. Okay. We're encouraging people to pursue the proxy. So we engage in behavior in which we facilitate extraordinary amounts of lending support 
and fraud because we turn a blind eye because it's increasing the quote-unquote home ownership amongst minority communities, right? I'm not saying, by the way, that home ownership amongst minority communities is a bad idea, but the objective is not home ownership. The objective is forced forms of saving, the capitalization of your living expenses, participation in a community, right? All the things that are associated with it, that's what we're trying to achieve. So if we just push the vector of home ownership, we end up with a housing bubble. If we just push the vector of people going off to college, what do we end up with? Exploding costs for college, deteriorating returns, right? If we decide, guess what? We just want to make sure that people are well taken care of in terms of their health care, well defined well. What does that mean? Does that mean a 1950s standard? Does that mean a 1970s standard? Does that mean a 2075 standard? Yeah, but what you're talking about, let's just use education as an example, is, is very nuanced. So it's not just taking a trillion dollars and spending it on education. It, it's spending it in areas and then monitoring the results and then determining who should be there, who shouldn't be there. My point is you're creating effectively a, a huge level of bureaucracy that would be in charge of this decision-making process on top of the uh the, the, we'll call it quote unquote, good politician that we would have to get there into that position in the first place. Do, do, do you really think that's realistic? Or, or I, I guess maybe a probability. If we properly think about, I think if we properly think about the incentive structures it is more than a possibility, it's almost a certainty. I'll give you a really simple example from education. Charter school systems. Are they good or are they bad? Well, I would say they're good. Okay. Why? Because precisely as you were referring to before, they encourage innovation in educational programs, right? They introduce alternate approaches. Is there any, to your knowledge, right? And remember, we're 20 plus years into the charter school and the homeschooling experiment and everything else. Is there any systematic attempt to do A-B testing and say, is this adding value or not? To which type of child is it adding value? Who's benefiting? Is there any of that going on? Is there any discussion that you're aware of? No, there's not. Hey guys, just want to remind everyone to check out Mike's Substack. It's at michaelwgreen.substack.com. Again, that's michaelwgreen.substack.com. Mike, I remember doing a, a whiteboard video about, it must have been over a year and a half ago now, but in, in doing so, I looked at the amount of spending, the total spending per student mm -hmm. in uh, different countries. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but I remember that the United States was maybe uh, middle of the pack or something like that, or actually maybe even uh, high. It was simply and high, yeah. South Korea was actually very low. But when you looked at the results, the you got far better results from South Korean students than you did from American students. So my, my point there is, let's assume for a moment, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, that culture has a lot to do with the priorities of education within a society and within a household. And regardless of how good the system is and how much money we throw at it, if you don't have a culture that, is, that prioritizes 
the value of education, are, are we able to achieve something uh, that, that would be better to the point where it would be worth spending the money? So what you just hit on is actually a fascinating example. Uh, you're referring to the PISA scores, right? performance and secondary achievement, um, that are used on a global basis right, uh, to assess the relative success of different educational systems. To highlight Korea, most people would point to China um, or to Singapore, et cetera. Um, what is little known about that, those data sets is that you actually have further breakdown within the largest countries like the United States. So that data is available state basis. It's also available on a ethnographic basis, et cetera. Do you know what the world's best performing educational system is? Uh, North Korea. No. The state of Massachusetts for Asian families. Mm, okay. All right. Part of what's happening is the dynamic of culture. You're 100% correct. If we have a family culture, a household-driven emphasis on education, and we have an emphasis on providing those tools and resources and making them available to those who are motivated, the United States performs better than anywhere else in the world. Mm. If we have a culture in which we try to incorporate households that look at education unfavorably and describe what you learn in schools as teachers teaching you all sorts of newfangled ideas or terrible sociological thoughts, right? That you should be gay, that you should be trans, blah, blah, blah. That's what we actually think education is about. And we communicate that to our children. How motivated are they? Why do they want to do well in this institution that they hear from their family is aligned against them? Those are choices that we're making. And again, it goes back to the language that we use. You present a vision that says the only way to succeed is by doing less. And I say there's no historical evidence for that. And in fact, 40 plus years into the Reagan revolution, almost all the evidence that we have is that we have more than fully exploited the dynamic of lowering tax rates and removing regulation. Right. But I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know if we could say that definitively that smaller government is, is going to be inferior because we're doing less. Just like you, I don't know that no, you would I, say I, I, the yeah, bigger government I'm, would be just right. definitively better because we're doing more. And it's one of the wonderful things about economics. It's not a true science. It's very difficult to do. Right. But I will tell you, and this is, I'm stealing from my good friend, Josh Wolf in the language on this, um, you get what you celebrate. Mm. You know, we do not celebrate a, uh, academic achievement. What do we celebrate? We celebrate Bill Gates dropping out of Harvard. See, you don't need to go to school, right? Or we celebrate the conformity of going to Harvard. Oh my God, he went to Harvard. He's really smart. Right? Peter Thiel is well known for highlighting this. For those of you who don't know, I used to work with Peter. Um, you know, that if Harvard really was doing what it should be doing, it should be taking the excellence in education that it theoretically represents and spreading it around the world, offering the resources and the lesson plans and the educational system that it offers in a diluted form, maybe online, et cetera, to the rest of the world. It's not doing that. Why? Because what it's actually doing is enforcing a dynamic around exclusivity and tribalism that says what really matters is you went to Harvard. It's not what you learned. It's not that you got a much better education at Harvard than if you'd gone to Berkeley, right? It's that you went to Harvard or that you were born into the royal family of the Habsburgs. That's what it means to children today. And that's absurd. So 
maybe the, the the best bang for our buck is is not getting super focused on government spending but focusing on influencing culture to the degree to which if culture made significant changes and prioritized different things that we would inevitably have a better government therefore more efficient government spending regardless of whether that was up or down maybe that's the the takeaway yeah i mean i'll give you a simple extremely poorly thought out idea what if we were to do the equivalent napoleon bonaparte did with canned goods right for those who are not familiar with it the invention of canning the preservation of meat in particular protein in cans so that it would last longer didn't occur until the 19th century Right. And it primarily occurred, it was the innovation was required because you needed ways of feeding soldiers, right? Meals ready to eat don't go bad. Fresh vegetables do, right? So what did he do? He announced the equivalent of an X prize. I forget the exact number, but it was something in the neighborhood of a billion dollars in present day terms for whoever invented an effective form of canning meat. What if we were to do the same thing in the United States? Said, you know what? We are going to hold a series of competitions. In two years' time, we're going to evaluate a bunch of competing product projects that people have done to dramatically improve the information that we're able to um, obtain and retain about the effectiveness of different educational techniques. We have another program, and each of these, you make them billion-dollar-plus prizes to attract competitors to come in and try to compete for these resources. Would you object to that? Would that seem like a good idea? That'd be a very easy way to measure the return on invested capital from them. I mean, it would it, absolutely it, lead to innovation. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is as long as it doesn't fall back means, but I don't want to be snarky. <laughs> well, again, like, so when you, that's pretty much about it. Yeah, no, I know. I, I completely agree. And look what we got. We got vaccines very quickly. But what did we also decide to do? Skip all the steps of testing. Yeah, 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 right, right. Right, so, you, you know, like, if we decide to hold the equivalent of a, of a sixth grade science fair and have a series of people with, you know, cardboard, uh, you know, presentations that say, you know, well, we want to do X and we want to do Y and we want to do Z, and uh, when we do all those things, it's going to work out great. We yeah. give that person a billion dollars. And, we get and made it mandatory for everyone to take their, their experiment. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. But... Like there, there's ways that we can do this. We know how to do this. I find it completely insane that Apple and Google and Facebook and TikTok have figured out ways to capture the attention of young people so that we can't get them to put the goddamn things down. Mm -hmm. And yet we can't figure out how to make education exciting and relevant for them. Right, right. Why? Because there's not a profit incentive to do so. This is where we are failing to incorporate the private sector. Yeah. I think what it just comes down to is just, uh, I just, my, I wish I could get over it, but I just see the probability just being so low that that creates more uh, good than, than bad. Or bad but, than good, you're saying. Yeah. Or, or more, yeah, that, that, that uh, result, the cost benefit analysis makes sense. I think that's. And, and, that's and, and again, that's, that's actually part of why I'm saying. It's important for people to understand that the costs are actually quite a bit less than we think. All right, that's part of the point that Richard is making. Is let's say we got nothing for our ten trillion dollars, 
it wouldn't meaningfully change the trajectory that we're on. Yeah, most people are going to come back and talk about inflation, though. There, there, Mike. That you know, if if that actually oh, wasn't agree. allocated well, then you know, because I think that the mental hurdle that that most people may struggle with is it's not so much money printing, or it's not so much increasing M two or the amount of currency units chasing goods and services. It's the amount of increase relative to goods and services. So, you know, you could print a trillion dollars a day, but if the amount of stuff went up by an equal amount, then we wouldn't experience, or we most likely wouldn't experience consumer price inflation. But it's just how do you, uh, you know, spend that 10 trillion in a way that, that's also going to uh, increase the amount of goods and services to where it doesn't increase consumer price inflation to where purchasing power uh, actually goes down, like what we've seen between 2019 and and today. Um, well, it, it, again, like when you say that the answer is, um, you know, when you say that the answer is smaller government, I guess it just always becomes a question of smaller relative to what, right? So, you know, if you go back in history, what was the um, population of the United States in 1783 when we or 1787, I guess, when we ratified the Constitution. And I probably got I'm my dates wrong. There's a history person out there. It's about 5 million people. Okay. Right? So we had 59 congressional representatives from 13 colonies, 13 states. Right? Today we have 455 people representing 200 or 325 million. Right? I don't know if that's a great metric, though, for... Well, for... part of what it's actually highlighting is, is that the role was so much smaller. The role was so much more local. Government as a fraction of the population, the number of people that were involved in government on a proportionate basis on the elected representative side is far greater. Now. No, then. Then as a percentage of the overall population. Right. But I just. Elected. So, so, you know, when you talk about all these problems, when you talk about the dynamics of it, again, it just matters how you choose to allocate the resources, what you're trying to target. If my objective is to shrink government, then people who see the government as not providing enough resources to disadvantaged populations, they're going to reject your message and not participate with you. They'll elect Nancy Pelosi because they think your alternative is by definition so much worse. Right. And so it's uh, hopefully okay. it's very clear. I'm not a fan of Nancy Pelosi. Right. I just want to be really, really clear. <laughs> yeah, I think that's clear. So is there a way to maintain the level of government spending but reallocate what we spend on and then uh, do that in a way that um, creates a tailwind for the private sector so the size however you want to measure it so the size of government or its influence over the economy decreases relative to the private sector yeah you do exactly what i show on the last picture. You invest money in government programs that offer a higher return than cost. The problem is we've been doing the opposite now for about 30 years. Okay. We focused on reducing taxes on the wealthy and corporations instead of improving educational outcomes and human capital and improving the characteristic of immigration coming into this country. Okay. Those, those are things we can do. We know the answer. We're just, you know, taking the easy way out because we'd, we'd prefer not to have the conflict. If the incentive structure and the narrative is let's shrink government and the easiest way to do that is to cut taxes, well, guess what? Then all the regulators and, and elected representatives in Congress have readily available to them 
tons and tons of money because who likes to have their taxes cut? Rich people and corporations, and they'll pay a lot of money. Yeah. Now, your, your position is very clear, and it gives me a lot of things to think about, so I sincerely appreciate that. Mike, I, I know I've kept you for a while. i got a couple uh, economic questions that uh, I was thinking about that you guys briefly touched on last night, but, you know, I'm a, a macro guy, or at least I'm, you know, an amateur macro guy. So that's really what uh, fascinates me. And you had a discussion just briefly last night where you're talking about the dynamic or the mechanism for the treasuries going from the auctioned to the Fed balance sheet. And uh, Richard was talking about how the banks uh, buy from, let's say, Janet Yellen, and then the Fed buys from the banks. And you said that that is a crucial distinction uh, meaning that it would be far, what I thought you meant was that, that if the Fed buys directly from the Treasury, that somehow that would be, not just from a standpoint of legality, but other than just the law, that would be a big, big difference. So did, did I get that right? And what, what is your view on that? Why is that such a, a big difference? Um, well, I don't know that it is that big of a difference um, in the way that it's currently constructed versus the way that it was historically constructed, right? So um, theoretically, as a private institution, a bank has a choice between do I expend my resources on buying U.S. government bonds or do I choose to expend those resources buying private sector loans, right? I could choose to earn an excess spread by focusing on the private sector. That's the idea. It's supposed to ultimately place a limit on the crowding out potential. Now, given the way that we've developed the system in which government bonds carry a particular and unique um, carry a particular and unique characteristic within the capital system, right? That's quite less true, right? And well, it's become less true on two fronts. One is just that the system has increasingly moved to one where collateral is the source of most credit. Right. And treasuries play a unique role in that frame. Right. I, I just want to be very clear. And you see this explicitly with SOFR versus LIBOR. Mm. Right. LIBOR is an unsecured rate. SOFR is a secured overnight financing rate, meaning that there has been collateral posted against it. Right. In repo. And in, in repo. Correct. And so, you know, the, the dynamics of it are the system that's in place now. Most credit goes to those who have more than enough already that can post it as collateral. There's no income verification component to it, et cetera. I don't care as long as I'm secured against collateral. Right. So who do I lend to? The extremely wealthy. Who do I not lend to? Those who may become wealthy eventually, if I were to provide them with capital. But they're deeply disadvantaged in the system that is set up today. Okay. And, and which we all we all know this, right? I mean that's just again, it's these are economic choices that we make in terms of how we choose to prioritize it. We've corrupted the initial system, which was the banks were supposed to do underwriting and credit. Now we've just replaced it with making sure that they have appropriate collateral and people gain that collateral on a regular basis, as FTX showed us in the crypto space or Bill Wang in the hedge fund space. Right. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. I thought you were... Uh, were because you guys weren't able to really complete your thought last night. So I thought you were going in the direction of how that would impact 
or would not impact maybe M2 money supply if we had the banks buying directly from the Treasury instead of the uh, Federal Reserve itself. And I think as of right now, the Fed has to go through the primary dealers, which could be under the umbrella of the of a commercial bank. But then, you know, like what we saw in 2020, I was reading a Fed report, and one of the main reasons they gave for M2 increasing by such a, a substantial amount is when the Fed was buying from the primary dealers, instead of buying from the bank, their, the majority of the selling and the buying was coming from the non-bank entities. So while the primary dealers were buying those treasuries, that was actually increasing M2 when they were buying it to sell to the Fed. And so I, I thought you had some sort of uh, insight as to how the, the, the Fed buying indirectly could uh, ha have a different type of impact on M2. Sure. Yeah. So, so there is actually truth to that. There's two components of why M2 grew so rapidly. And I think it's really unfortunate that, um, you know, people have naturally and somewhat understandably linked the growth in M2 to the subsequent inflation that we experienced. Um, M2, for those who uh, are not aware, is is the second, second or third, however you want to think about it, um, broader definitions of money. Right. Um, M1 is basically currency and checking accounts. Um, M2 expands that. But you also notice that M1 grew, grew significantly during COVID as well. Right. Um, the big reason for that is because there were two primary sources. One George referred to, which is non-bank entities like a hedge fund or a mutual fund selling um uh, a bond to a bank, that bank paying them in cash deposited into a checking account or a money market account. Right. Right. And that counts towards M2. Right. So that shows up as an increase in M2, exactly as George is describing. The second source of M2 is a corporation converting a line of credit, which is mm. potential access to capital to draw those down immediately. That's part of what created the liquidity crunch going into the event the Fed needed to address, drawing those down immediately, and again, putting it into a checking account. That's exactly okay, what so. they said in the Fed report, Mike. Right. And, and, and those are the two sources. That's why it grew so much. Hmm. It wasn't really money printing per se. It's not like, you know, we showed up with pallets of cash and, you know, those pallets of cash is what caused that growth in M2. It was an accounting change. Um, you know, people learned their lesson from the global financial crisis. If you had had a bank line of credit going into Lehman and you had not drawn it down in advance of Lehman, there's a reasonable chance that the bank would have said, we're canceling your line of credit. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you suddenly find yourself with far less access to cash than you otherwise thought. That in turn would have led to distressed selling, which is exactly what happened with the financial crisis that didn't happen this time. Yeah. Right. So like the, the, the evidence on the inflation component, it's like it's it sucks because this is, you know, again, part of the language component of it. The reason we got inflation is because we simultaneously supported incomes and spending capacity, and we did so in a super progressive way, meaning we gave lots of extra funds to those at the lower end who were very income and credit constrained, and therefore they found themselves buying things that they had wanted but historically been unable to afford. 
And we did that in the backdrop of reduced production, right? So we under, entered into all sorts of supply chain challenges, et cetera. That's, that's what caused the inflation. It's not Fed money printing per se. Hey guys, just want to remind everyone to check out Mike's Substack. It's at michaelwgreen.substack.com. Again, that's michaelwgreen.substack.com. In your view, are bank reserves more liquid than treasuries? And the, the reason I say this is because, you know, whenever you t hear about QE or QT, it's always um, either we're injecting liquidity into the system or we're taking liquidity out of the system. And I always have a hard time with that because that implies that those reserves are more liquid than the treasuries themselves. And you know, just going back to our example in repo, I think if you if you look at how those treasuries are utilized by the financial institutions, even the non-bank institutions, I, I don't know that they are less liquid. And yeah, I I, I I fall into a camp very similar to you. Okay. I just I don't think it matters you know, as much as people think. Yeah. Okay. It, it, it is an important. I mean, let, let's be clear. What it does do it does send an important signal that if you're going to need cash, cash is going to be made available to you. Mm, right. Right. So, right. Like right. that's a super important signal. It basically says, guess what? I can do all sorts of interesting things because I don't have to worry about cash being available to me. Mm -hmm. So I, that makes a lot of sense. More emphasis on that. Yep. And lastly, and um. Is maybe I, I don't know how to let people ask questions if you've got some time for that. But um, I was going to ask you, going back to you know one of our original topics here, how would you suggest that I think about the uh, the measurement of the standard of living? If if looking at real GDP is not a good way to do that, what how would you suggest that I sharpen my thinking there? And do you think that looking at real GDP uh, today versus last year or from quarter to quarter is beneficial? Um, so I think I, I think all information is useful. Some is more accurate than others, right? Um, and it, it's art, not science. Mm, um, okay. The way I try to describe it, have you ever seen the simulations of triple-jointed pendulum or double-jointed pendulum? I don't think so. Um, Google it on uh, on YouTube, right? So just type in, uh, you know, triple-jointed or double-jointed pendulum. And what you'll see is a system that exhibits very chaotic behavior, mm. right? You can, if you just make, you know, visualize this in your mind, a, a pendulum operating off of a single axis behaves in a very predictable fashion. When you introduce multiple... Um, links in it, it goes crazy, right? But there are ways that you can actually predict that system where you can identify where effectively constraints have emerged. If everything is stretched out in one direction, you know the direction that the pendulum goes next is the opposite direction, right? So on every variable, what I'm always looking for is, is there a constraint to that variable? Can it stretch any further? So when unemployment's really, really low, Right, the availability of workers becomes a constraint. Right, unemployment is really, really high. I don't actually care about how many workers I'm trying to deploy the workers that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a discourse that's broadly missing, right? Because sometimes 
that you know what that means by definition is is that you're going to have different things be the right answer at different times. When we hear the language the Fed is pushing on a string, people are simply saying, you know what, the Fed can help provide credit, but credit is not the constraint in the system right now. Right. Right. Sometimes liquidity is not the constraint. So simply adding liquidity is not the right answer for those conditions. Yeah, I'm looking at this thing on YouTube right now. So as you're explaining it, it makes a lot more sense. <laughs> uh, all right, Mike. Well, boy, this has just really been a fascinating conversation. I, uh, let me... If I you guess, want to uh, open it up for questions, I've got a few minutes. I actually cleared off most of my schedule. Um, people can raise their hands. You can select them as a speaker. Oh, okay. So let me... Uh, or you could make me co-host. I could help you out with that as well. Or yeah, let me let me do that. That's probably easiest. There we go. So send co. Okay, so I sent you the invite for the co-host. Okay, and if you want to raise, what do you want to ask a question? All right, George, we put everyone to sleep. Look at that. Uh, oh wait, hold on. We have a request. Okay. Oh, trend trader. Okay. Oh now now we got some. So do I just click on one of these people? Trend trader, you're up. And I apologize, everyone. I'm walking my dog, so. Um, Trend Trader, are you up? Oh, looks like you got kicked out. Let's, let's try one more time. For me? Yeah. Yes, I, we can hear you Hi, now. George. Hi, Mike. Thanks for doing this. Um, Hi. So fascinating. I have not heard anything so fascinating on Twitter spaces ever. So thank you for that. And so eye-opening. Um, Mike, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier when you were giving the example of, um, I think the example was you said that, you know, when China sells goods, and I apologize if I don't get it uh, completely right, but That's fine. It, when China sells goods to the U.S. consumer and um, and then buys treasuries, is effectively China loaning to the U.S. consumer. Um, that was fascinating, by the way. I had not quite thought about it that way, but but if that was the system that was set up, I mean, wouldn't we eventually get to a place where? China would be loaning a lot, buying a lot of U.S. treasuries and getting to a position where they might want more of the cut, if there's not a better way to put it. So didn't we basically set up the system in such a way that resulted in the situation we're in right now that it shouldn't have surprised anybody? What am I missing? Um, well, what you're missing goes back to this dynamic of how it develops, right? So China could choose to develop along a path in which it wants its citizens to be able to raise their quality of life by increasing what they're purchasing from the rest of the world, right? That would be the really positive outcome. Then you would eventually rebalance trade because the relative terms of trade would suggest that the Chinese become more capable of purchasing stuff, but that's not the path that they chose to follow. So can you expand on, that's fascinating by the way, but can you expand on is it because of the communist system and what their incentives are that they didn't really help their citizens um, be able to be consumers to the world? Yeah, because it seems like the standard of living is incredible. Um, I don't know that I would say it was because of the communist system as much as I would say it, it was because of a philosophical framework that allows them to do that, right? Communism becomes a very convenient cover for from each according to, you know, their ability to each according to their need. And oddly, the needs of the elites are obviously much greater 
than the needs of the rest of the people. Um, I'm being facetious when I say that, obviously. But that's what you have, right? China has an extraordinary number of, of incredibly wealthy individuals. I believe at last count, there were something like 32,000 people in China with fortunes over 50 million in a country in which the average income is still around seven to $10,000 a year, right? So the vast majority of Chinese actually can't afford to buy the products that they're producing for us, right? This is the Henry Ford observation that he wanted. It's not really true, but you know, he wanted his workers to be able to afford uh, Ford vehicles, right? Great outcome. Right. But that's not what they're doing. So as long as they continue down this path and the Chinese cannot, the Chinese consumer can generally not afford the goods that they're going to produce. I mean, we're, we're just going in one direction. I mean, there's no other direction well, to go. I mean, yeah, you, you, you nailed it. That's the way the system is set up. And so the unfortunate reality is that you can use that, as Lenin observed, so you'll get capitalists to sell you the rope with which you can hang them, right? We, we found ourselves at various stages in this pandemic, completely dependent upon China for many types of goods that we no longer have the capacity to produce. That should have been a wake-up call. So right? do you have any... Well, lesser extent it has been, but we're still way behind in that process. So this sounds very... Um... Is there no point? Is there, is there, are we at a point of no return? I mean, are we, I mean, is define it, what you mean by a point of no return. Well, you know, when you, when you and George were speaking earlier about the additional trillion dollars and you made the point that, you know, this ad additional trillion dollars, again, I may not have it completely um, summarized well, but when you made the point that the additional trillion dollars on top of what's already been spent, that if it went to waste, is it, you know, it, it's, it's a trillion dollars on top of, Materiality-wise, it's it's not that material relative to what has already been spent. And so, you know, when I say the point of no return, I mean, I assume eventually, I, I don't want to use the W word, but, you know, I'm reading about tanks and there's Biden quotes, Biden videos coming up about sending tanks to Ukraine. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have very positive images in my mind of what's to come. Yeah, no. I mean, one of the things one of the things that I try to emphasize to people is why are you reading this now, right? And and you're unquestionably reading about the W word because people want to have more of it, right? I mean, you know, yeah. I, so, I mean, I hate to lay it out that bluntly, but right, that's right, it is the right. path that we're currently going. Okay. I'll, I'll give you. It sounds like you're concerned that we're in rightfully so, and I've actually given a lot of okay. Um, sorry, I know that sounded really depressing. Uh. Isabel, I'm going to invite you up, and uh, Trends Trader, I'm going to remove you, not because um, of any reason. I just like to keep it clean. Okay, thank you. Okay, Isabel, go ahead. Hi, I uh, came into this conversation a little late, so I hope I'm not repeating anything that's already been said. But I was also like very interested and curious about this idea that I think if I heard you correctly, that we sort of overestimate the role of liquidity in sort of the inflation conversation relative to, you know, kind of supply chain issues and like putting hands into the, uh, you know, kind of uh, into the putting money into the hands of folks who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford those things. Um, but I'm curious, like now that we have, you know, raising interest rates and sort of um, sort of the opposite situation and to liquidity being taken out of the situation, 
does that mean that you're like not very convinced that that will be impactful in bringing inflation down? Like, how does that play into your thesis? And can you just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, again, this kind of goes into one of these constraints dynamics, right? Um, the I, I'm less concerned about the contraction in M2 than others are, um, in part because I think it's being offset by a dramatic deterioration in the U.S. government's budget um, because of the higher interest rates that we're now tying to it. So, um, you know, what we think what we're doing is fiscally prudent. That's certainly the models that we've been taught. But all we've actually done is reduce transfers to the poor and increase transfers to the rich and foreign. By raising rates right. specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the treasuries that are being held abroad, we're now offering higher compensation to those who are willing to buy them. At the same time that we're trying to get us to buy less of their goods. So they're saying, hey, wait a second, I can get paid even more money in dollar terms from selling you stuff now. Okay, fine, I'll lower the price of that a little bit, right? That matches what we're seeing. We're seeing a, a fall in the import prices. Um, but we're actually subsidizing, you know, the rich and foreigners with our hikes in a way that ultimately is going to be counterproductive because it doesn't solve any of the problems. How does that play into like, because I just keep thinking about, you know, the you know, I live in San Francisco. I work in tech. Right. And so like the way that I'm sort of personally seeing this play out is like, oh, all these companies don't have access to capital or they're afraid they won't be able to get access to companies. And so they're rapidly laying people off in like the tech class. Um, would those, I mean, would those folks be part of this category that you're talking about as like sort of like the victims in this situation? Or um, are we only specifically talking about kind of like lower and middle income consumers? Like wh where do you start to define the haves and the have nots in that situation? Well, I think unfortunately working in technology in San Francisco, you've been part of a protected class in a way that's not dissimilar to if you'd been an automotive worker in Detroit in the 1950s and 1960s, right? You would have thought, geez, you know, this is really the life, um, only to have the ultimate rug bull kick in in the 1970s. Huh. Um, I think, unfortunately, that's what California is going through right now. I think that's what the tech sector in general is going through, um, is a Elon Musk-facilitated recognition that we don't have to pay these people nearly that much nor do we need as nearly as many of them. Um, and that, but that uh, rug pull is basically being catalyzed by raising interest rates. I mean, is that accurate by like a reduction in M2 liquidity? Is that a fair statement or not really? Or is that not? I, don't, I, don't, I think that they are, um, I think it's providing a convenient excuse in the same way that headlines about inflation facilitated corporations raising prices even, even as they were not experiencing meaningful cost pressures, right? Like, you know, if, if everybody's screaming about inflation and I say, oh, I have to raise prices because of inflation, you're like, oh, I understand. Right. Uh, but what we've seen is this corporations are printing record profits and record profit margins. They're not really suffering from cost pressures. They're simply explaining a market position. Do you think that tech is being disproportionately affected because tech by and large is not profitable? Like so many of these tech companies are not profitable. They're sort of more like monetization investment plays. Like, is that maybe why tech's being disproportionately affected in your opinion? 
I think that has much more to do with it. I think the narratives of venture capital that's offering an embedded return um, and Silicon Valley being uniquely positioned to offer access to that created a very protected class that is now beginning to break. Okay. I, I'm not as convinced that it had that much to do with uh, interest rates, etc. In fact, there's a bunch of economic papers that are written on exactly this subject. If you have super low interest rates, people basically say, what's the point of trying to compete with Google? Because they could just borrow at very low cost and destroy them. Right. So, it, it, I mean, so functionally speaking, like the interest rate situation is kind of creating this rug pull. The question is just like, maybe that was a market inefficiency that we needed to correct. Is that sort of your point of view? I, uh, well, I think unfortunately that the Federal Reserve thinks that it's fighting inflation by lowering interest, by hiking interest rates. Um, and that's built on a, on a discarded, um, by anyone who's really paying attention, a discarded model of money. Right, In interest rates don't work the way that they think. What what they what they are arguing, right? The, the rationale behind the interest rate increases is that by making it more attractive for you to save, that you're going to reduce consumption. Um, it's very clear that the majority of households do not do that calculus. They do not say, "Gosh." Um, I'm getting 0% on my savings account, therefore I'm, I'm going to buy extra ice cream, right? That's just not the way it works. Sure. Um, High unemployment rates though, Mike, right? I mean, I think, I mean, my understanding is that they're not even necessarily oh, saying- uh, uh, higher, are... Yeah, higher, higher unemployment rates will absolutely lower spending. And we will have higher unemployment rates if companies can't borrow, you know, at like, these low rates, just like you said, I thought Google is a perfect example. Like they're going to lay people off like unemployment rates, particularly in that kind of like upper middle class tech, like whatever class of folks, like they're getting laid off left and right. Like would that, I, 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 mean I would actually frame it slightly differently and say that Google now feels empowered to lay people off because it's less worried about them emerging as competitors. Because it's, sorry, say that again, because it's less worried about competitors. Less worried about those, those employees who now no longer work for Google, going and creating competition for Google. I see. I mean, I, Thank you. Like, I, yeah. I just have a very negative view of what the Fed is doing. Yeah, <laughs> I understand. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Okay. Mike, can you hear see. me? We can do a couple more. Um, we've got uh, Rajiv Patnam and Isabel, thank you. Okay, Rajiv, you're up. Unmute yourself. Hey, guys. I uh, really enjoyed the... Uh, the, the talk today. Uh, so thanks for that. I guess my question is um, with China reopening and, you know, their data being questionable kind of at best, um, do you do you look, do you think there's a real risk and chance or that they're going to try to correct some of the data flaws they have in the past by, you know, killing more people off with COVID, uh, not actually killing them, but using COVID to reduce the population numbers? Or do you think they're going to use the reopening as a chance to kind of continue to push elevated numbers which you know could obviously cause inflationary push etc as they as they drive forward with more government spending uh so i'm going to offer up a theory that i haven't shared many other places i actually think that what g is doing by opening up i put out a tweet on something related to this earlier today i think he's basically saying okay who's really not with me raise your hands um 
And if you try to leave the country, you try to get your money out, you try to do that, you've just raised your hand and said, yes, I'm actually an enemy of the state. So I, I don't actually think this is going to last all that long. Um, you know, and um, in general, I think that China's past the point of making good policy. It's the system has become corrupted enough that uh, I think most most options are, that are available are components of a term you saw a lot earlier this year, Zugzwang, um, the chess term of any move deteriorates your position. China's just in a terrible spot. And so that that theoretically should you know kind of pause in global inflation a little bit if they're really not going to be able to grow as much as everyone kind of forecasts. I think it's very difficult. Um, this is part of the reason why you, you hear me highlighting the dynamic of interest rate hikes, right? Um, what we have done by hiking interest rates is deferred the need to separate from China and um, reduce the willingness of U.S. corporations to invest in re, you know, reshoring, et cetera. Um, so it's, you know, how we choose to respond to what I think will be the recession this coming year and China's failure to re-stimulate the global economy um, is ultimately going to determine a lot of the behavior. I, I, my guess is, is that we'll ultimately end up slamming on, you know, slamming the gas down after we've tried to slam on the brakes. And we're just in a pattern of, of poor decision making now. Couldn't agree more. Thanks much. Sure. Hey guys, just want to remind everyone to check out Mike's Substack. It's at michaelwgreen.substack.com. Again, that's michaelwgreen.substack.com. LB, you're up, and then uh, I'm going to bring up one more, and then I'm going to call it quiz. Yes, uh, good afternoon, George and Michael. Uh, sorry if you have a hard time hearing me. I'm a little sick. I'll do my best. Uh, I just wanted to come up so that I could provide a small clarification. In my impel opinion, in why the M2 money supply has dropped recently, uh, in my opinion, it has nothing to do with the rise in interest rates conducted by monetary authorities. It has more to do with the fact that uh, all those deposits that, uh, that that are making off M2 are going back into the reverse repo facility, which is which is quite reasonable because finally now banks can then, well, I should say, they can effectively uh, reflect properly the credited interest rate risks on the loans that they can make. Uh, and prior, and uh, the main reason why we had uh, money and the entry money supply balloon recently was, of course, because of all the government deficits. So as a result, cash, or I should say, reserves piled up into the banking system, which impaired the bank's ability to issue credit. And as a result, with the rise of interest rates and with credit finally being profitable for banks, they decided to dump all that extra liquidity into the reverse repo facility so that they can issue profitable loans, therefore leading to a reduction in actual money supply. So if I increase lending, what does that create? New credit. New credit. New form of bank deposit. New, new deposit. Yes. So M2 growth. Yes. Doesn't shrink. Well, he's saying, Mike, if you can hear me, he's saying if it goes into reverse. So your mouth doesn't like... work. So, yeah, you have to take in consideration one thing, Mike. 
right? Um, the third is conducting QG. At the same time, it's not in the exact matter that you really was in the sense that right now, the Fed is only government allowing government securities to mature, and they're not reinvesting the proceeds. Uh, I mean, and and they're destroying the the, the the proceeds. In other words, they're just reversing the balance in the book. Under normal circumstances, if they wanted to reverse what they've effectively done for the last ten years, they would be dumping government securities, and that would lead to an even higher shrinkage of M twenty. Right or not? Right or wrong? Would you agree with this or not? If the government is selling securities, that increases the quantity of securities they're held and lowers the quantity of cash. Right now? No. Yes. It's just math. No. Of course it is. No. Okay. Why do you say no? As far as I can see, thanks. The government hasn't borrowed recently. And therefore, and they also have reached the debt ceiling. How can you expect them that? How could you possibly expect them to reissue paper? Okay, so you're saying in the last week the government yes. has hit the debt I'm, I, now. Right now I'm speaking right now today. Okay, but that's not actually what we're talking about. Oh. We're talking about the decline in M2 that's happened over the past year. We're now at a negative M2 growth. That's not because we hit the debt ceiling today. So what cuts caused the, the reduction in M2? If it's not excess cash going to the reverse repo facility held by banks. No, I, I think the excess cash, the reserves going into the into the repo facility or into money market funds, that's just a transfer of the two, right? But what we've seen is everything ranging from companies have a reduced desire, and it's usually corporations that are driving a lot of this. That's why the corporate sweep was such a big deal. It was introduced in the 1980s and 1990s. But it's usually the large depositors that are saying, you know what, I'd rather own a two-year government bond. I'd rather be in a money market fund that doesn't count towards M2 calculations. That's what's shrinking it. If I take my cash checking account and I put it into a money market fund or into a bond fund or I use it to buy a bond or a treasury directs tip, that shows up as a decline in M2. Fair enough. Well, with that being said, how is, in that case, a treasury bill any different from a dollar balance? Simply in its marketability. If I walk in with a treasury bill to my local grocery store, they'd look at me like I was an idiot. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying that you can buy goods and services, put it, but can't you both it Why are you asking me the question? Can't you just, I mean, you just can't you just post it as a collateral and get credit? Not at my grocery store. Right. I can do that at my bank or my brokerage. Exactly. Account. And then we'll give you credit and you can do whatever you want. I mean, they're not going to. But right. It, so if we saw an increase in credit, we saw an increase in credit and we would see M2 rise because that would transfer to deposits in my bank account. But that's not what we're seeing. What that I'm trying to make is that even if M2 money supply has dropped, Mike, why do you look as if it's, if it's a bad metric? This is the point that I'm trying to make. This is the point that I'm trying to make. I, I didn't say it was a bad metric. I said it doesn't it doesn't cause the inflation that people think it causes. Well, inflation was never. I, I'm not the, I'm not of the school of thought that that inflation is a monetary issue. You know that. Well, I I don't know you, so I don't know what you believe. Well, we've had this conversation before, which is why I allowed myself to say such things. 
Okay. I might did not internalize your monetary philosophy, right. but um, I, I guess I don't know what we're saying. But can you hear me? You, you, you know, what we've established is, is that M2 is shrinking for non-nefarious reasons. Okay. And, what, uh, and that the impact that it has on inflation is is moderate at best. It's a secondary component. Just like its expansion was moderate in terms of its impact on inflation, it was a coincident as compared to a driver relationship. I, I guess I'm just not sure what you're trying to say. The point that I'm trying to make is that, I mean, it's not the end of the world. It's, it's, it's not a big of the deal, and I only came up to provide a reasonable explanation why it has dropped in the first place. That's all. Because, yep. because I keep hearing this in spaces, that's all. Can you guys hear me? Okay. But you, you didn't hear it in mine. But, um, all right. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll do one more, because I don't want to end on that note. Um, uh, Aaron... Aaron Sepulveda Kui. Hello, guys. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, hello, I'm Aaron Sepulveda. I'm an economist. I work for the Libertarian Christian Institute. Uh, just real quick, um, it's more like my view, and I uh, I tend to follow better total spending, either nominal GDP, nominal G, nominal income, or uh, gross output, and and whatever the Fed is doing. And that's an interesting, it's interesting to discuss uh, the mechanics on how that works. But what is happening is, if you look at gross output, nominal gross output, uh, total spending is dropping. And so certain industries, industries uh, they're very sensitive to interest rates far away from consumption. They're, de they're contracting while the ones that are closer to consumption are expanding. And that's the way inflation gets fixed. We lower spending so that certain industries can increase their output close to consumption. And then all the other ones that are not so close to consumption, like tech, for example, start start to contract. So that will be just my uh, my input, if you wish. Okay, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes, um, I can hear you. Okay, my, I don't know why. So I, get, I, I mean, Go ahead. again, I'm struggling with what you're actually trying to convey. You're saying that technology, because it is further away from the production function, Consumption. Uh, okay. I mean, just very, very quickly is, uh, a technology company like, um, you know, zoom is, is that close to consumption or far away from consumption? In my view, it would be somewhat close, somewhat far away. It's not producing, uh, food, for example. Right. But the fact that I have free zoom communication means that I'm spending less on other forms of communication. Yes. Correct. Okay. So. How is it beneficial then to penalize Zoom? Oh, because that means that Zoom is not expanding and consumption and resources can go to consumption industries. And it's not like you need so are you tremendous amount of solids. Because if I look at drilling rigs, for example, yes, they're falling. If I look at uh, investment, there you go. In, the the dr drilling is far away from consumption. There you go. So everything is, so, so what is next to consumption in your mind? Uh, retail is consumption, and then next to it will be warehousing, which will be like Costco or whatever. And then manufacturing will be really, behind. Let's, let's be really clear. The Costco is not warehousing. Costco is retail. No, no, that, that wouldn't be considered retail because they sell, they sell in a wholesale, if you want to call it wholesale. Is that, that a better label, I guess? Wholesale and retail are not the same. And people uh, don't buy, don't, don't go the same way. Costco, Costco has a retail model of wholesale, right? It is the membership based subsidization program. 
So the costs associated with running the organization are largely supported by the memberships that are sold as a retail operation, not a wholesale operation. But but they still they still sell, and then the consumers do behave. They treat it as a as a wholesale uh, business. They don't treat it as retail. They don't go they don't go and buy one item or two items. They go and buy a lot, and then businesses buy from it. So it uh, consumption consumption businesses go and buy stuff from them. So it is not consumption. Now it is really close. Yeah, that's that for sure. And so it will behave differently than let's say oil because it's closer to consumption and oil is not. Yeah, I mean, there, there are wholesalers and, and operations that fit the description that you're making. Costco is a terrible description of that. That's not how Costco's model works at all. Um, Cisco, uh, S-Y-Y, not the networking company, would be an example of something like what you're referring to in that scenario. Um, Cisco. Okay. Yes, yeah, Cisco. S-Y-Y is the ticker. I, the, the 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 point that you're making or you're attempting to make is you're saying, look, um, by removing pressure on the end consumption framework, um, we're facilitating a smoothing of the system. I, yes. It's fine. I mean, that, that may be correct or not, but man, interest rates are an awfully blunt tool. Oh, well, that, that, that's, that we could agree. And, 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 as, and as, uh, as I told you guys, we probably can discuss the the whole process on how that works, but the point is, some industries have to slow down so that consumption industries can expand, so that they can increase output, and uh, so they can increase output, and so prices and inflation uh, can start coming down. But yeah, I mean, there's more to it than you know the the summary that I have to do right now. But that that is my view that total total spending has to decrease, and uh, and it's unlikely that consumption spending is going to decrease super much, but it has. So that does help output and uh, and lowering consumption, uh, slowing consumption spending does help uh, reduce inflation. But that's about it. I mean, I don't think I have anything else to add. Yeah, I mean, again, I'll I'll say that there's definitely elements of truth to that. But what we're actually seeing is most of those consumption-oriented economies, ranging from Amazon on down, are reducing their investment, not increasing it. So it, you know. What we're actually doing is setting the stage for when the economy ultimately tries to recover, we'll just have price pressure all over again. Now, in investment did increase in the latest numbers. Now, well, uh, what were the companies that were increasing investment? Because it wasn't residential, which is kind of like the way it's supposed to be. That I haven't seen which of the companies are uh, they're increasing investment. Um, so very quickly, all forms of fixed investment are falling in the latest GDP report. The only form of investment that had any meaningful expansion was inventories, which is an extremely low quality form of investment. I, I, oh. I mean, I, I'll, I'll just lay it out. I think, I think your data, I think your interpretation of the data is wrong. Yeah, we, we agree to disagree. That's fine. Okay, okay. Mike. All right, um, let's try one more. Why not? Uh, Wheat Pro, you did a great job in my spaces yesterday. So we're going to bring you up. Aaron, thank you very much. I'm going to drop you down. See you guys. Hey, Mike. Thanks for hosting the space. Can you hear me? Yeah, it does. Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, I wanted to just uh, touch on uh, the uh, investing in education. I thought that was a really brilliant point you made. Uh, I, I, to 
just go back to George uh, Gammon. Um, George Gammon, you were sort of saying like you, you were worried about like malinvestment or the cost being wasted, right? Or like somehow squandered. But when you think about the cost of ignorance, like that is vastly outweighs the risk of actually squandering a little bit of money here and there. Because what we know with government spending is, yes, there'll inevitably be some waste, but does the money that does get allocated efficiently, does that more than make up for all the waste and uh, some corporate bureaucracy uh, or government level bureaucracy and uh, push society forward? And I would just like to point to time and time again, I think you see like a lot of successful examples uh, from government where, you know, yes, there's uh, waste, but also you you do have um, society as a whole being pushed forward or uh, the leading edge of technology being pushed forward. Uh, classic example is like SR-71 Blackbird uh, was funded under a black program, right? But that really, uh, you know, you could argue uh, pushed forward uh, uh, understandings of aerodynamics and aviation. So I just want to end on that. Thanks for hosting Great Space. Uh, going to your point, I, I think it's it's very clear that uh, government spending, although there is a cost-benefit analysis, that overall there would be far more cost than there would uh, benefit if history is a teacher. I mean, you used a couple examples, which I think are accurate, of government spending uh, being maybe on net balance beneficial. But when you look at all of the bureaucracy and all the, the, the waste that we have, I think it would uh, suggest that on net balance, uh, government spending is usually more detrimental. Uh, you know, I always say that uh, the um, intention of or a result of government spending is usually the opposite of the intention. And I think that, again, if you go through history, uh, that would play out over and over and over again. I mean, just look at the, the lockdowns as an example, and then look at all the government spending uh, that was, you know, PPP loans and then the stimulus checks and whatnot. Look at how that distorted the economy. And you can say, well, George, uh, it had some benefit because it gave money to people that were hurting. And then I'd say, okay, well, that's true, but now let's look at the cost. And I think it would be very obvious that the cost far outweighed the benefit when you look at uh, not just the lockdowns, but then the government spending that was allocated towards stimulus checks and PPP. Uh, just to use one example, I mean, those are economic distortions that we are going to have to live with for many, many years to come that will inevitably uh, disproportionately affect the poor and middle class because, as you know, we've seen uh, real incomes go down, uh, not up. Uh, so, yes, it's great for the first month or two and people are getting the checks, but after a year or two, now, all of a sudden, they're in a worse position uh, than they were in 2019 because their purchasing power is actually less now. Uh, they've gone through the additional uh, money that they have in aggregate total in their checking accounts. So, I, I mean, it just you can use the, the, the cliche of just going to the post office as an example or just going to DMV and uh, you know, just imagine DMV uh, trying to allocate a trillion dollars a year. <laughs> And I could just, uh, it, you know, and then you take it to an extreme, which is what I like to do in my videos. This is a thought experiment. And why is it that uh, communist Russia uh, did much more poorly than the United States? I would argue because they had, you know, call it 90, 100 percent of their 
uh, economic activity was a result of government. And if what you're saying is true, that on net balance, government spending is more beneficial, then we would want more. Uh, you know, then you could you could show throughout history that uh, as government spending increased, then the, I know Mike doesn't like the GDP number, but the real GDP would increase if that's the metric you're using. And I think that uh, usually uh, you're going to see the complete opposite of that. And that's why United States did far better than communist Russia. Yeah, just to quickly follow up on that, uh, George, I'd like to just highlight like big difference between the United States and Russia, you could argue, you know, like arguably the land is vastly more productive in the United States, like no, because transportation the, systems are more and decision-making is more decentralized in the United States as well. That's the, the key point I like to, to make there. And when we're, you got to look at investments by government on a case-by-case basis and not paying with too broad of a brush. And in the case of education in particular, if you're choosing to invest that money in education, the alternatives are you end up with a bunch of ignorant people that are going to be in jail. And in New York, it costs a hundred thousand dollars a year to imprison no, but, an inmate, but, right? Yeah, and so I, the, like the, that's so, that's a real uh, oppor- the opportunity cost you got to weigh, right? Right, but I, again, I think you're assuming that if you just throw more money, if the government throws more money at the problem, that it's going to improve because that's the intention. And my point is, if you look at history, you'll see that usually the result is the opposite of the intention. I mean, look at student loans as an example. You could say that, okay, if the government backs these loans, it's going to be a good thing because it's going to reduce ignorance. Okay, well, look what it's done to the amount of uh, kids that we now have that are just burdened with all of these uh, student loans and the student loan debt, and they'll most likely never get out of that. So again, I, I realize what the intention is, but usually the result is the complete opposite. And, and I'd go back and look at the statistics that I was mentioning with Mike that show that, you know, just throwing money at the problem, even when you look at it in terms of education, does not always produce better results. And, uh, you know, I think the reason South Korea stuck in my mind is because they spent so little per student, but yet got such good results, relatively speaking. And, um, you know, then here in the United States, we just throw more money and more money and more money. Uh, what we've seen is it's not going to benefit the student. You're just going to have more and more and more administrators, and it's going to create more and more bureaucracy, and it's actually going to be detrimental uh, to the student, although the intentions may be good. It's 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 this this typical, uh, you know, road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I I do grant you that there are some instances that you can point out where the cost-benefit made sense. I would argue the highway system. Um, but overall, uh, I just I, I just don't think that uh, history shows us that government is a good allocator of resources. Hey guys, just want to remind everyone to check out Mike's Substack. It's at michaelwgreen.substack.com. Again, that's michaelwgreen.substack.com. Uh, there's absolutely truth to what George is saying. Um, but I would also highlight that, you know, when we talk about Port Bell projects, we talk about bridges to nowhere, right? So, um, it, it, it's not what we choose to do, like deciding to invest money in, in childcare, in children's education, 
and making people more productive members of society is almost always a good thing. The behavior around student loans, the way that they're constructed, is a byproduct of private sector lobbying of government, um, such that we have 17-year-olds making non-dischargeable choices without any information about the quality of the education that they're receiving. And over half of the student loan debt that is outstanding is outstanding to those who never actually graduated from college. Right? So the fact that it's a terribly designed program, we can treat that as, well, what else would you expect from a government outcome? Or we could say we demand better. Right. And we're all like, you can feel it in George's language and I'm sympathetic to it. Right. We're all so overwhelmed with the scale of the problem that we're incapable of even starting to fix it. We can't take representatives that we all universally agree are terrible and say enough. So, like, I, I'm very sympathetic to the desire to shrink government, but understand that, George, you're speaking to your tribe, and part of what I'm trying to, and by the way, I am, like, hopefully I've been very clear, I am super sympathetic and naturally more part of your tribe than any other tribe. But I'm also saying that we're not doing a good job of talking, right? And so if your solution is simply, well, I don't want to hear anything else other than shrink the government, Somebody who says, yes, but I've got all these people that are being poorly served by the existing system and the gut calls, so therefore I'm going I to ignore you. Yeah, I, I apologize. I had a call just come in. Um, therefore, I'm going to ignore you, right? Like, that's not helping. You've built an extraordinary following, and I would actually suggest that part of your responsibility at this point is figuring out ways to get your followers and you yourself talking with people who you're deeply uncomfortable with understand what they're seeing that's so different from the way you're seeing it. That's why the institutions play such a critical role in our society. It's why sending people to school together so that their children talk and they're forced to interact with each other or attend church together so that we're forced to interact with people that we might feel uncomfortable with. We've deeply disadvantaged ourselves by giving ourselves access to national forms of entertainment so that George and I can have audiences that are measured in the millions that pay attention to us on a national basis while the local school board has nobody showing up. And we, we just, like, it is incumbent upon us to have these uncomfortable conversations to start bridging those gaps. Because that's the only way we're going to solve it. Or it's going to be the W, as somebody else introduced. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to be clear. My 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 motivation is not speaking to a tribe, and uh, you know my my motivation is actually doing the opposite of that, and just trying. And, and, to... and I applaud you reaching out for exactly that reason. Why? What's that? I said I, I I very much applaud you reaching out and trying to understand as compared to turning around and saying you know to your audience, God that Mike Green guy is a moron. No, 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 absolutely not. No, 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 Mike, you're a super smart guy. I'm just trying to see, you know, what am I missing here? And it, 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 you know, let me listen to all viewpoints with an open mind and, and try to see if, the, if my thinking changes. Right. And I, I don't think my thinking has changed because I, I'm not, I don't know that I'm coming out here. And although I talk about, you know, small government, small government, I, I'm not just, uh, throwing that out there as some sort of broad cliche uh, that that's the, uh, a cure-all. I, I think 
it requires uh, thinking but um well you know I, I don't know mike i think i need to process it longer but what i'm really i think the conclusion right now for me is that i see what you're saying and on paper it works well and it, it, just like the the prior uh, caller i think it works well i just think in practice the probability of of us having a good outcome as far as cost benefit is very very low although you know maybe what you're saying is that's our only option right now and unfortunately we're kind of backed up into a corner where the only thing we have is a hail mary uh, yeah just maybe to right to our end it on on that uh george i i just like to say i like to highlight the um individual responsibility of politicians and administrators like we have to you have to believe in the system to a certain extent in order to actually create a positive change. And when it, we get let down by people that abuse those powers, it's very important that like society as a whole uh, chastises those people and holds those people up and say, says, this is not the standard we accept. We demand better, right? So we you have to first, like the first road step on that road is believing in the system can can improve right now all, all uh thanks for letting me talk i'm gonna step down but yeah. great talk both of you yeah thank you thank you yeah mike so i think that's pretty much my position i i, I do and i do believe that if if government was less powerful uh that we would it would attract better people and we would have a greater probability of achieving those outcomes that you're talking about if we were to reallocate, uh, dramatically reallocate the uh, government budget, let's say. But um, yeah, uh, so I'm just going to push back on that. Think about it. Yeah, I'm yeah, just going to push. I'm going to push back and just say that there's there's no example that I'm aware of in history in a status-seeking social population. In which by making something less prestigious and less powerful, we attract higher quality candidates. I, just, well, I, I, I don't think that's feasible. But I, I understand what you're saying, and I'm very sympathetic. I would actually suggest we want to do something different, which is refocus ourselves away from the national politics, which is largely a form of entertainment and not one that we have that much influence on, and refocus ourselves on our local politicians. Right. So, like there you can actually have an impact yeah you george because of your national platform might be able to moderately influence an election i guarantee you you george as the private citizen can have an impact in your local community mm, yeah very well said yeah yeah and I, I think that's uh, another takeaway is just trying to encourage people to uh make a difference understand the problem use critical thinking uh, don't try not to be tribal. Uh, try to have an open mind, but then try to you know do everything in your power to uh, it impact change. Because you know I was having a conversation with with Neil Howe, uh, Mike. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if you know Neil. Yeah, no, I, I knew Neil. Yeah. But um, you know we were talking about the fourth turning, and he was talking about all of the fourth turnings, kind of the way they ended in the past. And I noticed that everyone ended in war. And I, I said, Neil, I, I realize that we're in, at the end of the fourth turning right now. Um, 
and it may end in the late 2020s. But does it have to end in war? Is, is there any way out? Can we somehow do something to get onto a different path? And he actually kind of hesitated to answer the question because I don't think he, he liked the answer, right? And he just said, George, the only thing I can tell you is that every fourth turning in the past has ended in war. That's all I can tell you. And so, you know, the, the, the way I've kind of built up optimism since that conversation, and maybe I'm just kind of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just trying to create a, a world that doesn't exist just to sleep well at night, but it's that because we have the internet today and because people like yourself have such a, a large voice relative to, uh, you know, the 1990s or the 1980s or something like that, where no one would even know who you are, most likely. Uh, no one would know who I am, obviously. Uh, but now that we have this way to communicate with so many people, maybe, just maybe, that gives us that way out to where it doesn't have to end in war. As long as people just stand up and do whatever they can in the local community, or online, or whatever it is, to try to change the narrative and get people to open up their eyes. Maybe I'm being naive. I, I wouldn't say that you're being naive. I'd say that you're being, uh, I'm going to steal from Peter Thiel, who, by the way, unfortunately, I think is on the opposite side of this. Um, you know, he, he, in his books, Zero to One, defines societies as being, um, uh, God, I'm blanking on the, on, on the right phrase for it, but it's, um, you know, he basically creates a, a two by two matrix where it's optimistic and pessimistic and um, hopeful and, un, you, you know, um, the, the word I'm, I'm blanking on the word you use is better than one that I'm going to use, but effectively active or passive. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if we are passively optimistic, we're basically doing some variant of the scene from um, Shakespeare and love where he says, I'm not quite sure how it works out, but it always does at the end. Right. And um, the active optimistic would say, I think things can work out really well if I do the appropriate things. Right. So I'm going to make a plan and here's how I'm going to choose to prosecute it. Mm -hmm. I think by and large, most of us are trying to sleep well at night saying, well, there's really nothing I can do about it. But you know what? It's always worked out in the past. So therefore, I'm not going to become actively involved. And we, we like to paint pictures of the past in which we convince ourselves that nobody thought that way. Right? But remember with the American Revolution, somewhere between 20 and 30% of the U.S. population left because they believed that they should stay with the king. They moved right. to Canada, they moved back to the U.K., et cetera, or England at the time. Yeah, they're the Tories. There is, well, they're the loyalists is what they're called. Mm. But, um, you know, and the temptation in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War was to take away all their property, right, by government fiat in order to punish them, right? Now, one of the key innovations that Alexander Hamilton made or key choices that Alexander and Alexander Hamilton made was to respect their property rights for the most part and to encourage them to invest in the United States because what we desperately needed was investment. So very early on, establishing that commitment to property rights, et cetera, holding our nose against working with individuals 
that we otherwise despise was critical to the process of development in the United States versus many of the other regions in the New World that devolved into various systems of exploitation by the elites, right? So, like, we, we know what we have to do here. We have to be actively optimistic, right? You yeah. believe things are going to end up better. But we cannot, basically, like, if you were describing a situation of war, then we should be planning better than our competition. And we should be figuring out what the resources that we can put in place are so that we emerge from this victorious and in a better position than we were before. And that's not what we're doing. Mike, you said last night that we didn't want to turn into China. Mm -hmm. And I think you, people, listeners could have taken that several ways. Um, one thing that struck me was just from a standpoint of the, the, the size or the or the uh, you know the power that their government has, that's worrisome, obviously. Totally agree. Totally and completely agree. So how do we prevent that? I mean, I go back to the lockdown, right? Because I think that's just fresh in everyone's mind. It's such a great example. And at the time I was on my channel, I was just really pounding the table that we need to do a cost-benefit analysis. And as you said, you were doing the exact same thing. But it seemed that in the mainstream media, no one was doing a cost-benefit analysis. And if, it, and if they were doing a cost-benefit analysis, it was only based on a couple things, like how bad is the virus, you know, what what is the R-naught value and whatnot. And I said, well, wait a minute, how are you not including the cost of giving the government this much power and the probability that they will use that against you in the future. And I, I look at, you know, what China has done, and I think that they've, that the standard of living has definitely increased there relative to, you know, 40 years ago. But now, it, you know, they're an overbearing kind of uh, authoritarian, I think is the right word. And I just, again, I'm concerned that if we give the government the ability to just have an open checkbook and we convince them that, uh, you know, deficits don't matter, although they might not, uh, if we convince the politicians of that, and then the people are convinced of that, they don't have a nuanced understanding of it like you do. And, or Richard Duncan as an example. And then we're just giving them this kind of, uh, uh, you know, trump card for lack of a better term to expand their powers and, isn't that a cost that we should factor into the equation or a potential cost that may come back to haunt us in the future? And I think, you know, that's maybe uh, one of my, my, my big concerns just because I, from my own personal experiences, uh, government is, I don't want to go as far as to say evil, but uh, they're a lot closer to evil than they are to to good right so what 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 is your idea of that type of risk that we add into the equation well i i think those are certainly non-zero risks right um but you also have to acknowledge what you're doing you're saying government is separate and distinct from me you either believe that we have a representative government which is of people by the people and for the people or you don't, 
And what you're correctly articulating is this is a China's model, which is government, or at least was government of the party, by the party, and for the party, has distinct risks to the Chinese population that you would be unwilling to bear. That party apparatus has increasingly shifted to a single individual, much more like a monarchy, even if it's not a constitutional or hereditary one yet, could very well go that direction. Um, many in the West, when I talk about becoming like China, many in the West bemoan our lack of ability to act in an authoritarian way in the same way as the Chinese. I, I find those people bemoan that to be uh, one, poorly informed, and two, quite dangerous, right? So, like, that's what we should be paying attention to. But you either believe in representative democracy or you don't. I believe in a representative democracy. I don't think that we're doing a good job of it right now. But I think much more of that. You alluded to something that I think is really important. You know, most people are not as nuanced as you are, Mike, right? Well, that could be, you know, one nuance could be a bad word, right? You could be saying most people are not as bad as you are, Mike. I don't think that's what you meant. I think what you're saying is most people are not as well informed. Well, the solution to that is to make them informed, not to treat them as if they can't. You either respect your citizens or you don't. We're showing every indication we do not. That is not healthy. That's not, like, it, you know, it's completely insane the way that we behave. And that's been introduced on the left with deplorables, and it's been introduced on the right with libtards. We're all guilty of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mike, you've given me a lot to think about, my friend, and I sincerely appreciate it. Uh, my we pleasure. Have, we have different views, but, but yeah, we have different views, but but boy, it sure is uh, fascinating to, you know, I, I know I, I kind of verbally stumble through this because I'm trying to, you know, think so quickly about what you're saying but it gives me a lot to process over the weekend and, 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 you know, for the next few weeks. And for that, I'm very, very, very grateful. Well, I, I, I appreciate that as well. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience. I appreciate the patience of everybody out there, um, in, uh, in, you know, um, suffering through both my monotone voice and, uh, my highly offensive statements, which I find myself congenitally incapable of not making. No. Um, but um, thinking is a messy critical thinking is a messy process it is unfortunately you you, you correctly articulate that mike how um, can i help you uh you know promote what you're doing and how can i help a fellow individual that's trying to be actively optimistic so i think that there's a couple of things one you use exactly the right terminology encourage people to be actively optimistic by seeking out your advice the advice of others in terms of their individual financial choices um and being proactive in their life, they're already well down that path. The second part of it is to encourage people to become active in their communities, right? And so, like, um, I, I recently started writing on Substack. One of the things that I find so interesting is how they encourage people to continue to write, right? It's part of their business model. They have a profit incentive for that. They don't generate any revenues unless I charge, and therefore they're constantly trying to encourage me to generate revenue on this sort of stuff. But the simple reality is, is that they're out there regularly saying, hey, what did you write today? What did you communicate? What did you contribute? And I would encourage you to take your audience and the individuals that are listening to you and ask them that same question. What did you do to make your community a better place today? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think if we all start honestly assessing that, 
And it can be as simple as, you know what, I saw a piece of garbage and I picked it up and I threw it away. Or it can be as simple as I went to the school board meeting and I asked in a respectful tone, what's our plan for raising the quality of our education of our children? Mm. Right? How are we choosing to enforce this? Who is being put in charge of this? Who are the people that are running for the school board? Who is the mayor? Who's the local director of uh, um, you know, the, uh, the commerce group? Right. Like every single one of the, the chamber of commerce, um, every single one of these are ways that we can contribute and educating yourself in the process, reading books like Richard Duncan so that you understand what money is as compared to grabbing, you know, some historical, uh, you know, quote that's been yanked off the internet and promoted to you by either a Bitcoin promoter or a gold salesman, understanding what those things actually mean, how they play into the current construct, et cetera. And asking questions rather than asserting um, can often be really helpful in that process. Yeah, and Mike, intellectually curious and not dogmatic. And 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 I understand it sounds like I'm dogmatic, not intellectually curious. When I don't always want to listen to what other people have to say, I've spent an incredible amount of time on this stuff. I apologize if that comes across as arrogance. Um, I fully understand that it often does, which is part of the reason why I joke around these things. But, it, you know, we all can do better. We all can educate ourselves more. We all can, at minimum, listen to why other people are complaining. We don't understand why people vote for Nancy Pelosi. But honestly don't, because we're not willing to talk to them. They seem such, like, such ridiculous people to us that we can't even possibly imagine why they're doing it. So let's try to figure it out. Let's yeah. figure out we can offer them a better solution. And that's even harder to do when, with the algorithms of social media trying to exacerbate. Oh, that. such well, an important statement. Very important to realize that. Yeah, yeah. Even Twitter now, I mean, that it's great, Musk and all that stuff, but my goodness, I've seen the, it, it seems to me what they're doing for engagement is really trying to create Twitter battles. And it's, it's just, uh, I don't know. But anyway, I, I don't want to keep you any longer. Mike, thanks again for your time, buddy. It was a real pleasure. Take care, everyone.